Welcome to Between the Gutters Podcast, where we talk about the stories within the panels. This is your co-host, Albert Lamb, and with me today is... I'm Drew Tan. <laughs> How's everybody doing? We hope everyone's safe. Uh, today, we're going to do another episode, and we're going to try to start a new uh, segment where... What we wanted to do was we wanted to go over evergreen stories, evergreen comics. Um, Recently, there's been a lot of news that came out of fandom uh, about a lot of characters for DC. And uh, we, we got to talking, me and Drew, amongst ourselves. And we wanted to discuss, you know, comics that we felt summed up the the pure essence of these characters something that we could recommend or or let let our uh listeners know about so that if they ever wanted to you know get on board uh get on board with these characters they could read the stories that we think best encapsulate all of the purest qualities of of these characters and you know Depending on how this goes, this is something new, like I mentioned earlier. Uh, this could potentially be a recurring segment where we pick random it characters. Probably will be. Yeah, we'll we'll probably do this, and uh, we'll pick random characters and try to pick evergreen stories for each of them. For those of you that are listening, um, I want to go into what the definition of evergreen is before you know before we hit the pavement. Uh, Drew, do you have anything you want to say about that, or would you rather I go with a, a well, textbook definition of it? <laughs> I'll I'll let you hit up the textbook definition, but I I was gonna say that uh, earlier earlier today I was uh, texting a little bit with our dude Shanus man, and I, I mentioned that we were gonna record this episode about evergreen stories, and you know what his response was? He said, "Nice." It's a good way of putting off Marvel's top two, you slackers. <laughs> <laughs> well, so we, all, I could, all I could tell him, man, was we will do the top two at some point in the future unless we die. <laughs> and his response was, if you die, I'm going to continue the top two. And one of them will be X-Men number one by Chris Claremont and Jim Lee. And the other <laughs> one will be X-Force number one by Rob Liefeld. <laughs> So, so to me, that that's more motivation for you and me to keep on living, man. It'd be interesting if uh, people got, got onto the podcast and suddenly there was this dramatic shift and there's just this noticeable, uh, marked, noticeably uh, marked changed, change in quality for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> like, it, what, if, what if we died and Zach and Shanus had to take over? For the rest of the top two. <laughs> but it just became a gag for them, so they just started picking like the worst stuff. Yeah. Just to, just to mock us from beyond the grave. Let's let's <laughs> trample on the memories of our dearly departed friends, Drew and Albert. <laughs> you know who's great? Dan Jurgens. <laughs> Dan Jurgens Thor is the number one greatest Marvel comic series of all time. No, that that's that ain't how it's gonna be. No, not as long as breath still, you know, flows through our lungs. As long as we have life, we will do this correctly. 
at some point in the future, at some point. But tonight, tonight we are talking about evergreen stories, and and specifically, uh, we're going to be talking about a couple of properties that were, like Albert said, some properties that were name dropped in a during Fandom. In our previous episode, we talked about some of the movies and video game trailers that were promoted during that event. And it, yeah, it just got us to talking about those characters and made us think about what we actually love about them because the stuff that we saw coming out of fandom didn't really uh, inspire us. With we hated it. That, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all trying to be diplomatic and stuff, but I'm, I'm pretty sure if they listened to our last episode, they would have heard what we said. <laughs> Don't dance around the subject. <laughs> Let them know, Drew. <laughs> Put it in as, make it as succinct as possible. Let them know in the clearest possible terms. <laughs> we hate them. We hate their families. We hate everything they represent. <laughs> I want their heart. I want to eat their children. <laughs> I don't know what. <laughs> Well, so the I, I did want to add that one of the reasons that I was um, I was I was thinking about evergreen stories was well on the one hand it feels like when we talk about comics a lot we the the discussion of evergreen stories comes up a lot and you know and you know uh, for those of you listening you're still waiting for us to get to that definition I promise you we'll get to it. Uh, but I just wanted to put this out there first. So I, fe- I felt like that would be an interesting discussion to have for the podcast was, you know, just this discussion that we have amongst ourselves to finally put it in podcast form so that those of us, uh, those of you listening can hear our thoughts. Um, the other thing is I wanted a reason to talk about the characters that we love so much, you know, that I, or, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to speak for Drew, but the characters that I love. And my, my hope is someday we get to a point on this list where we talk about even some of the most random, obscure characters. And mm-hmm. I hope for those of you listening that you'll get some, we'll give some exposure to characters that I feel should get some love and you'll learn something about, you know, these characters and you'll seek them out and, you know, you'll, in, you'll, you'll find some entertainment value in, learning about these characters. So, for example, uh, I, I hope that someday someone out there finds an, an evergreen slapstick story. I, I hope <laughs> I, I hope we... I hope, I hope people... <laughs> first of all, I hope people figure out who slapstick is. <laughs> <laughs> I want to open your... I want to open up your world to, to slapstick, and I want you to read... The only slapstick story that you will ever need. <laughs> it's like, there are only like two possible choices. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure one of them was Fred Van Lent. So it's not that yeah. one. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, anyways. <laughs> so you want to hit them with the, with the definition of what we mean when we say evergreen stories? Yeah, so... When I uh, when I googled evergreen stories, what what came up wasn't really the most detailed. So, but I'll I'll give it to the listeners anyways. It says 
Evergreen content is content that is not time sensitive. Uh, that is not time sensitive. Feature stories and uh, human interest stories are usually evergreen. The term is also used for long-standing, long-lasting content in marketing materials and advertising. Um, we we talked about it in brief while we were putting together the idea of this podcast, and we did mention that there are multiple ways of looking at evergreen stories, and. Yeah, I'm not going to speak for Drew, but, uh, you know, feel free to chime in um, with any no, thoughts. No, just, just speak for me, man. Just speak for me. <laughs> well, I was going to say that uh, when we talk about evergreen stories, the one the one way to look at it is we wanted stories that encapsulate the the pure essence of a character. Like, if I pick, a, if I wanted to tell you an evergreen Superman story, I want to, I want a story that says everything that lets you, the reader, know everything that you need to know about what it is that makes Superman special and Superman great. Yeah. That is what an evergreen... That is one the one way, and I think the primary way that we look at evergreen stories is, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the story that shows the best version of that character. Um, and if you work in the definition that was provided by the Google search I did... Um, yeah, it's it. It's in line with the idea that this is a a story that will transcend time, that will last for all time, and that's that's the idea. the The other uh, way to look at it that I mentioned to Drew, and I think a lot of people think of it this way, is it's a lot of the times when people think of evergreen stories, it's just a good story um Mm -hmm. you know like it's just the best possible version of that story and for those of you listening that it it might be hard to tell the difference between what i my my first uh initial uh offering of the definition and, and what i just said but i do think it's possible to tell a really good story about a character that d- isn't necessarily in line with what its original creators intended or or might not even be in line with um you know what we believe to be the purest essence of that character but it could still be a really great story and you know it, it might not be the evergreen story that the ideal evergreen story that we think of, but it could still be a really great story and it could still be timeless in its way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I definitely agree with that. It, it, it's just a small distinction, but it helps us to narrow down uh, the things we talk about, right? Because we're not, if we were just talking about every single good Batman comic or every single good Superman comic or every single good uh, Spider-Man comic or whatever, you know, that that's, that's going to be a pretty long list. Like there's no shortage of things to to talk about there, but by giving ourselves this kind of uh, definition or criteria to, to work with, it forces us to evaluate the stories that we do like from a specific point of view. Yeah. Because if, like I'll, I'll give you an example um, that I just thought of. Like when 
based on uh, our working definition of Evergreen Story, uh, let's take Superman for an example. We're not going to pick Superman for today's uh, podcast, but just thinking about Superman, when I think about a great Superman story, one of the first stories that I think of is Superman, Red Sun. Mm. But I don't know if that's exactly an evergreen story. I mean, it's an evergreen story in the sense that it's it's always going to be good to read that story. It's a perennial good read. Exactly. But but based on like our working definition of of uh, evergreen, it's a story that highlights uh, an alternate reality Superman where Superman is a commie. <laughs> He's a communist, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And and that's not exactly true to the essence of Superman, but yeah. I think. When you read that story, um, by portraying Superman as a commie, the creators of that comic, uh, Mark Miller and Dave Johnson and Killian Plunkett, they they show what makes Superman cool by showing us what happens when he doesn't have the elements that make him an honorable hero. You know? Yeah, yeah, totally. And, and that's so. Th- so it's it's kind of like. Uh, it works in reverse in, in in that sense. Yeah. But I mean, it's it's still a comic that I would absolutely recommend. And if you just if if you just said, if if our definition of evergreen was just a comic that you could read at any time and is you know literally timeless in in that sense, then yeah, it's an evergreen story. But but our definition that we're working on, um, that we're operating off of is is that it's not just a good story, but it's something that captures the spirit and the essence exactly. of the specific character or or a team of characters. The the example that stuck out to me the most uh, vividly was, and it's a pretty recent example that me and you had in a discussion, uh, you were telling me that you had recently read Silver Surfer by Dan Slott and Mike Alred, and you were yeah. telling me that it's a great comic, but it's not necessarily the silver surfer comic that you always imagined it's not like what you think of when you think of a silver surfer comic but it's still a great comic yeah you know exactly that's a, that's a great recent example because uh silver surfer has always been probably yeah i'd say he's always been my favorite superhero character ever since i was a kid i've had an affinity for him so all these years i've anytime there's a silver surfer comic i just try and seek it out and the Dan Slott and Mike Allred run wasn't the kind of the way he was portrayed wasn't necessarily how I always envisioned the Silver Surfer based on uh, previous stories. And although I think that uh, it's possible, you could probably make a case that Slott and Allred kind of took some liberties with his character, making him more a little bit more uh, naive or comedic than he normally is. Like, it still worked for me, like, as a story, it, but yeah. it, it's not necessarily uh, how I, I guess, how I envision the Silver Surfer to actually be. But yeah. I'm also not one of those fans that's like, that's not the Silver Surfer. <laughs> There's no way he would ever really do that. You know, like, I, I'm not that kind of fan. Like, if it's a good story, it's a good story. And right, I don't right, really, right. I don't really, I can, you know, I can, I can. You can yeah, roll with the punches. Leeway. You can roll with the punches. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. An- another great example would be uh, 
Mr. Miracle. Uh, Tom King? The recent Mr. Miracle maxi series by Tom King and Mitch Gerrids. So that that was a story that got a good amount of acclaim, I think. But there are also plenty of people that that don't like it because they think, oh, that's not really Mr. Miracle. He... He wouldn't really do that, you know, or or it, it's it's more of a Tom King story that he could have, you know, created his own characters and it would have been the same thing. But for me, it's like, do I really think Mr. Miracle would act the way that he did in that story? In my <laughs> heart of hearts, probably not. But it was still a great story. Um, it, it wasn't so antithetical to the idea and concept of Mr. Miracle and Big Barda that I felt offended by it. Yeah. But I could, I can understand if somebody was like, man, Mr. Miracle would never try to uh, commit suicide or be all depressed like that or whatever, you know? Um, you know, if, and if you look at the old Kirby stuff, I, I think, yeah, like it, it, it's kind of hard to imagine why you'd write Mr. Miracle in that way, but Tom King did. And, I still thought it was a well-done story in on its own merits. So, yeah. you know, that that's just another example. Yeah, and I I I do want to say that ultimately if the story is well done, we can I can appreciate it for on those merits, right? But there are mm-hmm. stories that and and we will get into this, but there are also stories that miss the mark completely of you know what the core of these characters should be or what we believe the characters to be and on top of that they commit the sin of being bad comics and that ain't forgivable and it's the unforgivable (laughs) sin (laughs) (laughs) yeah so like uh, i'm with drew when he says that you know i i'm not gonna take such offense to something where i'm gonna be like that's not the way that he was all the way back in issue 629. That's, he would never do that. Outrageous. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go throw a brick through that writer's window. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I, yeah. I'm fine with people taking some creative liberties. Yeah. But on the other hand, I do want to say that if you go too far... Then, yeah, I, I'm. I think creative freedom had it. Like there are certain things that you can do, but just because you can do them doesn't mean you should. Exactly. Like, a, 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 like the example that immediately came to mind was the movie Man of Steel. Like making Superman a killer? No thanks. Yeah. Yeah. You know exactly. And, and that's that's not a movie that I was trying to make a point about an alternate reality. Superman sucks if he's a killer. Like if if that was what the story was trying to say, if it was trying to say. See, Superman only works when he doesn't kill, and that's what makes him a hero. And you know, he has a he has a good, pure heart, who saves everybody. Then, okay, but that's not the story that they told. You know, like yeah. they they told the story where it's like Superman is in this crazy situation, and the only way he can save the day is by killing Zod, and he did it. Isn't yeah. he heroic? <laughs> and I'm like, okay, yeah, you lost me on that. That's totally antithetical to the concept and core idea of Superman. Yeah. Zack Snyder, you are just bereft of any goodwill from me for the rest of your life. Um, 
I don't know. Maybe that's a little bit harsh. I'll, t- I'll tell you what. I won't watch. I won't pay to watch any more Zack Snyder movies. But if if I've passed him by on the street, like I wouldn't spit on him or anything. Nice. Yeah, I would. I would treat him like a human being, man. Like I wouldn't. I'm not gonna go on. I'm not gonna go hunt him down on Twitter and and harass him and and send all these messages and stuff. Yeah, and tell him that he's an awful person. Like. Look, as a person, I'm sure he's fine, but as a guy who made a Superman movie, that was a really bad movie. That was that was a really bad movie. It was disrespectful to Superman, and I hope he never makes another Superman movie again. I you know what? I I accept that. That that is that is a powerful enough uh rebuke of Zack Snyder without <laughs> Without threatening him or without wishing him, you know, true ill yeah. intent. Yeah, you, you know, we, we have it lighthearted on this show, but I really don't wish him any ill intent. Yeah. Like, it's, it's just one of those things where if I saw him on the street or something, I mean, first of all, I don't even know what he looks like. But if I did, I, don't, <laughs> I wouldn't really say anything to him, you know, like, it's just, he's just a person. So, you know, he, he does his thing and... And uh, he makes movies that I don't like, and that's fine. I don't have to watch them. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I, there are other Superman stories that exist, and I'll always have those. We'll always have those. And, heck, there are yeah. other Superman movies that exist. I'll, yeah. always have, I'll always have Christopher Reeves. So there we go. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, exactly. I, I wouldn't even say that he ruined Superman or, or anything, you know, because... You can't really ruin something when there's all the good stuff still exists. Yeah, totally. Totally, totally. So, do you have any oh. other thoughts? Or what are we no. going to say? Uh, I was just going to say, man, I, I didn't really plan on going on a, a divergent like that. <laughs> I thought we were going to get ready to dive into what we were going to talk about. So, Well, I, I thought it was all relevant. Like, I... I I want our listeners to have examples and to know uh, just from the examples that we provided that uh, what 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 our intent is, and uh, hopefully it helped. Yeah, yeah. Agreed. Okay. So moving forward. So last week on fandom, there was. Uh, a lot of news about movies. One of the one of the movies that got a lot of attention was Suicide Squad. So that is our first comic that we wanted, or first property comic. Uh, yeah, yeah. That series. we wanted to address series that we wanted to address. We wanted to go over. Uh, yeah. So let's let's go over what the Suicide Squad is, just so that our listeners know who they are and what they are. And, uh, you know, uh, let's tell them about what elements make up or have to be present to make up the ideal Suicide Squad story. Um, In brief, uh, what the Suicide Squad is, is it's a team of lowlives and criminals and villains who are... uh, who are basically forced by the government to go on suicide missions for for them with the promise of uh, having their records erased. 
How does that yeah, sound? It's, it, it's uh, I don't know if their records get erased, but it, it uh, it'll cut time off their sentence. Okay, okay, yeah, it'll cut time off their sentence exactly. And and uh, I guess the most recent iteration that people would probably be familiar with was the David Ayer's movie that came out, which had Will Smith as Deadshot and uh, Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn. Uh, I guess one of the things that is a signature of the book is that they usually take a bunch of random or not so random villains, they put them together, and one of the things that always stood about, out about it was that you always had the feeling that anyone could die. So Hence the title. Exactly, hence the title. So whenever you read a Suicide Squad comic, <clears throat> you get the feeling that you never felt safe reading these comics because, one, they make you... They try to make you... And I won't say this about all the characters, but they'll, they'll try to make you invested enough in the characters so that when they die, some of them might you know, rip your heart out a little bit, or at the very least, it comes as an unexpected shock. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think are some of the elements that are required to make an ideal Suicide Squad story, Drew? Like, what, what, what is it about the team that has to come through in, when you read a Suicide Squad story? I think you just about covered it. Uh, so just to summarize from my point of view, I would have to say that number one, it's got to be a team comprised primarily of supervillains. And these typically aren't uh, your bigger name villains. They're more lower tier villains. There might be a, a, a couple of slightly bigger names, like if you consider Deadshot a big name. Mm. And uh, I mean, I guess Harley Quinn is in it, but I don't, could I That's ask not the Suicide Squad yeah. I like. Could I ask you something? Yeah, yeah. Do you think was Deadshot a big character before the Suicide Squad, or would you say that the Suicide Squad was the thing that put him on the map? I think the Suicide Squad was the thing that put him on the map. Okay. So for those of you who are who don't know the comic book history of Deadshot, he was originally a, created as a Batman villain. Uh, I believe it was back in the like pretty early days of Batman, like I want to say in the 50s or early 50s, uh, just a, a sniper assassin a mercenary who's known as one of the greatest, if not the greatest marksman in the DC universe. Mm. And he was always just this lower tier uh, Batman villain. I think for a long time, he wasn't really anybody... Uh, he, if you look at his first appearance, he he doesn't really look like the way he does now. He he was a dude dressed in a tuxedo with a top hat who had pistols. <laughs> <laughs> so he sounds yeah, like a he, dandy. <laughs> he looked like a dandy. Yeah. yeah, I don't even remember if I don't remember if he had a mustache, but he, yeah, he didn't look he didn't look anything like the way he looks now. Yeah, now you know the classic look of him is he's got. Uh, the pistols attached to the gauntlets on his arms. I don't, not, not pistols. Uh, I guess I'd just call them guns attached to his gauntlets. Yeah. And he's got that uh, helmet or mask that has uh, 
the sight monocle thing. Yeah, sight scope, so yeah. you can you know aim properly. Um, but from what I remember, I think he kind of started returning to the consciousness in the maybe the later seventies. I think he was in a, a Batman story around that time, and then it wasn't really until the late 80s Suicide Squad when he became prominent again because that was when he was one of the uh, main characters of the Suicide Squad uh, series from mm. the one that started in 1987. But yeah, going back to uh, your original question about what constitutes uh, a good Suicide Squad story, like yeah, obviously it's got to feature the villains and like you said earlier, there are certain there's a certain level of investment you, they have that the creators have to build so that you f- actually care about these characters because these are all characters that aren't really notable. You know, like they're it's it's characters like the Enchantress or or Captain Boomerang, uh, Bronze Tiger. Like they're they're just characters that unless you're really deep into comics, you might not have heard of them. Uh, you know, unless you watched a movie or something, but right, right. but f- for for the most part, even people who read comics, you probably haven't really read too many comics that feature them because they're not. The, the whole purpose of these obscure villains being in the comic is because they're expendable. You know, no one's going to care yeah. if uh, you know Doctor Light gets killed during the yeah. mission. That's the that's the reason why he's there. So, you know, that new James Gunn movie, you know. You, there's a good chance that polka dot man is going to die. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like he's, he's not anybody. And even, even if the actor is someone famous, there's a chance that he only signed on to do one movie. And yeah, you know, it's kind of a surprise to the audience that, Hey, this actor that you thought was going to be in a potential sequel, I guess he's not anymore. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so I, there, there's that aspect of it. Yeah. The fact that somebody's people's, the characters' lives have to be in peril. And I think the the other thing that's important, and I think it's the thing that it's the hardest thing to to do, and I think it's the reason why so many Suicide Squad stories fail, mm-hmm. is because you have to in order to make people care about the cast, you have to do a good job of writing the characters as people with depth and even even if there are characters that are despicable because they're criminals or or some kind of you know killer or or thief or whatever mercenary you don't have you as the reader you don't have to like these characters or or empathize with them but you have to build some level of sympathy and understanding for them as as individuals just so that if when they're when they do suffer um, deaths or losses during their missions, you know you'll feel something. Like you might not feel sad, but you'll feel yeah something. It's the ability to build investment. It, it's it's against it's essentially like working against the against the waves is what it is, right? So yeah. on the one hand, you mentioned these these people are they're criminals and they're despicable, but how do you tell a story about a criminal or, um, you know, a murderer or whatever, and make the readers root for them essentially, right? Maybe not to the point where you're like, 
I want him to continue murdering indiscriminately. Yes! <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> yes, Slipknot survived so he can hang another person next week. <laughs> I did want to add one other thing that uh, I felt... Like, I, it, I wanted to add something that I felt explicitly should be said, and you can disagree with me with, if you want, uh, but... Mm-hmm. I do feel that one of the things about the Suicide Squad that always stuck to me was there's always got to be this... It goes hand-in-hand with the idea that they can... That you as the reader feel like any of them can die at any moment. But in addition to that, it's the idea that they're underdogs. Like, they're kind of like the bad news bears. They're kind of... uh, Whenever they go out on these missions... No one, as a reader, you get the sense that no one's rooting for them to survive. The The government that coerces them into mm-hmm. working for them is not there to give them their freedom in good faith. They, yeah. they, they could care less if any of these characters actually die. And, you know, uh, the rest of society in their world could also care less. So... You, you could even make the argument that the world would be better off if they all died. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, there's... At least for me, there's always this sense that they really are underdogs in in every way. Because they're, they're... You're not getting guys like Darkseid on this team. you got guys <laughs> like Captain Boomerang, you know? <laughs> like, these are not power power hitters and they're constantly being sent on suicide missions they're the suicide squad so so they're underdogs in the sense that people are rooting against them in the sense that society hates them and even in the sense that in terms of their powers they're punching above their weight class usually for whatever mission they're being sent on so i think that is an element of the suicide squad that ideally would be present yeah, yeah, that's absolutely a good point. They're, I mean, the whole, one of the reasons why these guys are on the Suicide Squad is because they're, they get caught easily, you know, like they're not very successful at what they set out to do. And that's why they're tossed in, in prison and Amanda yeah. Waller, um, you know, rounds them up. Actually, that's that reminds me. I, I'd have to say that Amanda Waller is probably the another critical element of the Suicide Squad. I I don't really have any interest in the idea of a Suicide Squad that doesn't have Amanda Waller as the driving force. She's basically um, not the field leader, but she's she's the person who runs the the Suicide Squad program. Yeah, so she's, she's the one who who determines which of these criminals is gonna, um, you know, be, be injected with the explosive nanites so that they can do her bidding for the U S government and, and go on these covert ops missions. You know, I think in the, in the story, it's a, it's actually called task force X. That's what their official name is, but, but they, but, they're just also known as the suicide squad because nobody expects them to survive their missions. Mm-hmm. And Amanda Waller is a critical character because she's just this really strong iron willed woman 
who's willing to plunge her hands into the filth and go to, <laughs> she's willing to do things that other leaders either aren't willing to do or can't do because they are too upstanding. She's but, a scary lady. Yeah, she is a scary lady. She is a character who, I guess you could, if you could imagine like a, like a more ruthless uh, Nick Fury type yeah. of character. Yeah. I think that's, that's kind of what she is. And, and her nickname in the stories is actually just the wall because yeah. nothing can run over her. She just stands in the way of, of anybody else. She's uh, skilled at strategy in terms of, of uh, like combat strategy, but she's also uh, a master of the political landscape too. So she, she, she can actually deal with um, politicians, bureaucracy and po- politicians and things like that. Mm. And she stands up for herself and basically is also an anti-hero in a sense, because she's using villains to do her dirty work. Yeah. Sometimes that puts her at odds with the justice league and the actual heroes. And uh, yeah, I, actually that that's probably one of my favorite stories that I, I wanted to, to touch on. If, uh, when we start talking about the actual, evergreen stories or is there anything else that you wanted to say or uh yeah no you i like you mentioned earlier that uh the 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 team is comprised of losers so you do have guys like deadshot and bronze tiger and like just people that uh most your average person isn't really fully aware of and i just wanted to give the example of captain boomerang and you know he's a dude who's just an absolute coward and he's 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 going on missions with the team but he's always trying to either he's either out for himself or like looking to save his own neck and yeah. he you know he's also this like middle-aged like you know chubby dude so yeah who who's on this team of supervillains and his whole gimmick is he throws boomerangs so that's just an idea of the kind of lineup that you're looking at yeah exactly yeah so uh what what comic slash story would you are we going to put on this list for an evergreen suicide squad story what is the run who is the creatives behind it what do you to got? me, there's there's really only one run of Suicide Squad that's worth reading, and that's the 1987 run, uh, written by John Ostrander, mm. and art by Luke McDonnell and and some other, you know, various other artists. But I think Luke McDonnell was the one who uh, started the run. I, I I don't have the all the credits uh, at hand, but um, you know, no, so no disrespect to the artist, but. Uh, it's just easier to call it the John Ostrander run. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's often the case with comics. It's, you know, there there are multiple fathers and, you know, you can't always... In, in an ideal situation, you, you have one consistent team all the way through, but in comics, that's rarely the case. Yeah. Yeah, but that, that run from 1987 uh, ran 66 issues. I think there might have been a couple of annuals and there was also uh, a four issue Deadshot miniseries that that was uh, di- directly uh, that directly tied in with the run. Mm. But as far as like saying 
like I would call that run an evergreen run. I mean, there's certainly things in that series that are a little bit dated in terms of when you read it, you can recognize that it was written, that it was made in the eighties, you know, like there, there are references to things like the cold war and, and, um, Islamic pop terrorism and, and stuff like that. Yeah. I don't remember if there were pop culture references too much. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's, it's just kind of the, in terms of the things that they dealt with, um, yeah, I think there were, you, it, it, there, yeah, it just kind of feels a little bit 80s, but if you can overlook that, the character building and the world building is really, really well done, and it, it does have a very solid conclusion. I, I don't know if he ended it because he had, he wanted to, he wanted to end it there or if it was because of low sales, but mm. either way, I remember the ending being a pretty impactful character driven ending. And that's the thing with John Ostrander's run is that it was a very character driven run. Like there would be st- story arcs where it would be the team going out on these deadly missions, but in between those big missions, he would dedicate entire issues simply to the team back in the prison where they're just, uh, you know, what they do in between missions when they're, when they're not out in the field mm. and there would be st- complete issues. Like a recurring thing was they would have issues where one of the characters on the suicide squad would have an issue dedicated to that character where he's talking with uh, the chaplain or uh, the psychologist at headquarters and you would get insight into the character and learn more about where they were at emotionally and mentally, maybe learn about their, their backstory. Mm. And it, it, it didn't, I mean, there's, like I said earlier, they're, they're all pretty much rotten people, but it, it helps you um, comprehend to a certain extent why they are the way they are, you know, it makes them real uh, believable rotten people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> But, it, you know, if 66 issues is too daunting for someone to just dive into, mm. uh, there are a couple of highlights that I would single out as evergreen stories. The, f- the first thing that I would want to point out would be issue 10 of Suicide Squad. And that one was, I, I believe that one was drawn by Luke McDonald. And issue 10 is a one-off story. And it's got Batman on the cover, so there's an easy in for anybody. It's it's got it's a story about Batman, uh, and at the time, Batman was in the the Justice League. The Justice League had a kind of had an encounter with the Suicide Squad, you know, but it wasn't a really overt encounter. And Batman started to suspect that the U.S. government was using supervillains to to do their dirty work. And Batman, he ain't down with that man. He ain't mm. down with that at all. Yeah. So he, he being the world's greatest detective, used his skills to, to basically dig up dirt on this Task Force X project or program. And he found out all about Bell Rev Prison and where they keep these criminal super criminals that the government uses for these missions. And he ends up, you know, trying to trying to get he wants to get evidence to to like expose them so that you know, they'll, the world will know and, and they, they'll have to stop what they're doing. And he wants to, he wants to take them down. He wants to take down the suicide squad. 
So he actually busts into the prison, but he is detected by security. And what, what ends up happening is Amanda Waller herself confronts him in a hallway or someplace. And she basically stands up to Batman. She, Batman's like, I've got all the evidence I need. I'm going to go public with this and I'm taking you down hard. And Amanda Waller, she stands up to him. She doesn't back down. She doesn't flinch. She basically tells him that she knows he's Bruce Wayne. And if he goes public with the Task Force S, Task Force X team, she's going to expose his secret identity to the world. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, that's pretty heartless. That's pretty cold. Yeah. Yeah. And Batman is the one who flinches. He blinks. He, <laughs> he backs off after that, man. So that that was one thing that always stood out to me because it's a great story about how hardened Amanda Waller is. You know, she she knows in her heart that the Justice League and Batman and them are are good guys. She doesn't like them because she can't control them. Mm-hmm. But when it comes down to it, she's gonna do what she thinks is right in the name of her country. Yeah. Well, the other fun thing in that story was that when Batman busted into the prison. He actually fought some of the other characters. So I think uh, Rick Flagg Jr., he, he's one of the guys who is not uh, an actual criminal, but he's he, I guess he's just a, a guy affiliated with the, with the government who was assigned to be the team's field leader. So he's like one of the few guys that's actually, you know, like a good guy. Yeah. But he still obeys orders, you know. So he, he's actually trying to fight Batman. And, and at the end of the story, he's, he's super pissed, man, because – in his mind, he's like, I have to work alongside scumbags like Deadshot and Enchantress. <laughs> but I'd rather be, you know, on Batman's side. Why am I fighting Batman? <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a pretty cool um, conflict to have, you know? Yeah. I mean, it goes back to what we were saying earlier about how it's hard to write a Suicide Squad story because you do you you want to write the you want to write people that the readers can root for but at the same time there's the conflict of the fact of the reality according to the story that they're bad people so it's again there's there's this sense that you're just kind of reading a story where you're where you're basically pushing up against the waves you know yeah <laughs> and, and yeah like, exactly and you see that in 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 that moment of uh, Rick Flagg Jr. fighting, you know, one of the one of the great heroes ever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I don't have the issue in front of me right now, but <clears throat> if I'm remembering it correctly, I want to say what happens is, I think like Batman's beating up on like Captain Boomerang or or some other jerk, and yeah. then Rick Flagg is the one who 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 joins in and like basically helps him out and, and like gets Batman off his back. And then after the fight, I think Boomerang was like, thanks for saving my bacon back there. And then Rick Flagg just like starts, he just explodes and berates him. He's like, you better just shut up. I can't believe I have to help scumbags like you while good men like Batman. Have to, you know, like, he's just, he's mad. Yeah. Just for a little bit of context for, um, for the listeners so correct me if i'm wrong but um 
prior to this, there was a Suicide Squad comic, but it was a war comic. Am I am I right? I don't know if there was an actual series, but uh, from what I know that from what I know there was a an old Suicide Squad from from older comics. Um, I want to say that back in the Silver Age. Yeah. I don't think they had their own series, but okay. Um, I think it was uh, in Brave and the Bold. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were they were just. Uh, I think they were like a World War Two kind yeah. of squad. Yeah. It was it was just a it was a war. From what I remember, it was like war stories, and the thing that made them the Suicide Squad was they just threw themselves into battle, and yeah, you know, I don't I don't think lives. they were. I don't think they were villains or anything. Yeah, they weren't. So, you know, I wanted to give that little bit of information just so the listeners, uh, you the listeners know that when John Ostrander put this book out there, he created a lot of the elements that are basically the Suicide Squad that we have. You know, everything that you, you know, know to be the Suicide Squad basically came from what John Ostrander wrote. So yeah, exactly. Everything from the movie and, or if you currently read the, the current iterations of the suicide squad, they're all some, they're all heavily influenced by John yeah, Ostrander's run. Yeah. I mean, they're not as good and they're certainly not evergreen, but <laughs> they're, <laughs> they try to, yeah. to it. Yeah. They don't step too far away from the original vision of what John Ostrander did. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Do you want do you have anything to say about some of the comics that some of the Suicide Squad comics that are around that we wouldn't necessarily consider evergreen? Well, uh before I get to those, there is one other like an actual story arc. Oh, um, oh! I'm sorry. I want to sorry. call out as an evergreen story arc. Go for it. Um, it it's called Apocalypse Now, and this was uh, it's available in a trade paperback. Um, let me let me look it up real quick to see which issues it collects. It's uh, issues 31 to 39 mm. of the John Ostrander run, and this is a great example of why I enjoy the the Suicide Squad. And it's called Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse spelled like the planet that Darkseid is from, you know. So not not Apocalypse like the X-Men character, but uh, Apocalypse. Not the traditional way that we would yeah. spell Apocalypse. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And just, just to give a brief uh, summary of the story, one of the characters in the Suicide Squad is revealed. She's just this, th- throughout a bunch of issues, she's been on the team for a while. They just call her Duchess. And she's super strong. Is it she Duchess? Has super strength or... And, or yeah, Duchess. My bad, Duchess. Oh. She she has a uh, super strength and and uh, super durability. And wait, before you go on, is this a spoiler? Uh, I mean, it's kind of a spoiler, but I don't really think it's a, a big deal because you already know that they're going to apocalypse. Okay, cool, cool. I just wanted yeah. to put it out there in case you know. Okay, go ahead, go go. I don't I don't think it's anything that's gonna destroy your it's not a twist that this story hinges on okay but any, anyway the character duchess is revealed to actually be lashina who is one of the female furies of dark side 
and she wants it's time for her to go back to apocalypse so she ends up um using the suicide squad's resources to and takes some of the team to go back to apocalypse so that she can uh, regain her her place as one of Darkseid's female furies and what ends up happening is that she ends up taking half the team and then some of the other team members that get left behind want to go on the mission because some of the Lashina also took some of the support staff with her so the other team the rest of the team ends up going to Apocalypse as well um and it just becomes this this crazy battle this crazy battle on Apocalypse between Darkseid and his forces and the Suicide Squad. Certain character, several characters die. That I won't spoil. I won't tell you who dies. But it, it it's one of those stories that shows you. Uh, number one, it's just fun to see any for, any really well done fourth world stuff. I'm a sucker for that. Mm-hmm. Anytime we have a good Darkseid or Apocalypse kind of story, I'm always there for it. And, but but secondly, it also shows you the consequences of the Suicide Squad and and the con- specifically the consequences that the characters deal with because it's an it's a series that has such a large ensemble cast that not everybody not all the characters are actual members of the team that go into the field but actual support characters that you know they function as the team. Uh, doctor or the team chaplain or the team psychologist or it's the the guy who pilots the helicopter for them you know so there's all these other supporting characters and and what you see is that even those the regular people that are just doing their jobs they're not immune to just the cloud of death that surrounds the suicide squad right and it's it's actually quite tragic and and sad but also very uh emblematic of what makes the suicide squad the suicide squad because it it just shows you this is a group of people that if you had a choice you and if you were in your right mind you probably would want to stay away from them (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah um yeah that's yeah that sounds like some pretty heavy stuff yeah um, did you want to add anything else? Cause I was going to mention, it was kind of an honorable mention. Yeah. What's the honorable mention, man? Um, one of the suicide squad stories that I, that always stuck out with me was from, uh, justice league unlimited, the cartoon. Yep. And it's called task force X. And it's been a while since I watched it, but it it was definitely one of the episodes that were that that jumped out at me. And it in it, what happens is a ver- the the Suicide Squad. Although because it's a kids cartoon, they don't call them the Suicide Squad; they just call them Task Force X. They get sent to the Justice League Watchtower to retrieve something. So. It's a good episode that I think captures what it is that makes the Suicide Squad work because they sent these criminals in to sneak into the Justice League Watchtower to retrieve this this object. But again, they're they're facing off against the likes of 
you know, Superman and Martian Manhunter and Wonder Woman, just like top tier supervillains. And you got guys like Deadshot, you know, who's yeah, who all yeah, stick. yeah. The Clock King, yeah, all he has are guns or bombs or what have you, pocket watches, exactly, exploding pocket watches. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think the thing that was clever about that episode was. They gave them an objective where they could win and lose at the same time, essentially. So so there was never an expectation that these guys were going to beat the Justice League in a physical fight. They had to use their wits, and their goal was to re- receive, was to sneak onto the station and take this object. And in that way, it was... I, I thought they did a good job of threading that needle of, okay, the stakes feel very real because they're facing, you know, something that's akin to a god compared to a regular person. Mm-hmm. But they still have a very achievable goal that they can that they can attain. You know? Uh, yeah. Something that is... Within within their wheelhouse, that requires them to be sneaky and tricky and um, underhanded, you know. Yeah. So even though they're again, so even though they're criminals, you you root for them because they're the underdog, and on top of that, there is there's a win. Uh, I don't know if the term is ratio or not ratio, but. There's a win. There's a win condition for them. Exactly. There's a win condition for them. So, uh, yeah. I mean, it's not a comic book, but if you ever get the chance to check it out, it's a Justice League Unlimited, and it's the episode called Task Force X. Yeah, and and just as another aside, if you watch Justice League Unlimited, it it does that show does a lot with the character Amanda Waller and what what they do on that show with Amanda Waller is very true to the core essence of her character. I think maybe in some regards, I, I would even say that Amanda Waller is the heart of the suicide squad. Like if you take Amanda Waller out of it, I don't really think it's, it doesn't work really the suicide squad. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I, I think I, I'd agree with that. She's, I I wouldn't want to see a suicide squad where, you know, they try to get clever with it, and they find some, uh, I don't know, man, uh, Maxwell Lord or something. <laughs> like, I, I just, I'm, I'm cool off that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think out of all the Suicide Squad characters, she's probably the most essential. Like, I'm not even sure if I would consider Rick Flagg or Deadshot essential. I think they're important characters, and I, I enjoy them in the Suicide Squad, but I think you can still have a Suicide Squad without Deadshot if Amanda Waller is still there. Mm. But you can't say the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. Mm. So what are some of uh, the stories, some of the comics that are not Evergreen Suicide Squad comics that people might be wondering about? So we mentioned earlier that... Uh, Harley Quinn was in the movie of the Suicide Squad, 
And we also, and I also, I'm using that as a bridge to mention that there is a current Suicide Squad where she plays a prominent part of the team. Yeah. And as a fan of comics, it's hard for me to not look at that or any of the iterations of the Suicide Squad where, and, and it's not entirely about her, but it's a big part of it, you know? <laughs> but it's hard for me not to look at that as a cash grab. And I get it. DC Comics is a it's a business at the end of the day. But, you know, they they have a character that was popular and they wanted to, in, to inject her into something that they thought would be a vehicle to sell her to mm-hmm. to people. And that's why we get we get her in the David Ayer's uh, Suicide Squad movie and why she's in the current iteration of the Suicide Squad. Uh, so you have, you know, all the way up to the New 52, which was the the era that that version of the Suicide Squad came out, all the way to now. Like, is, yeah. is there a Suicide Squad in the Rebirth era? Yeah, I is. believe it's still going, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's still going. Yeah, so um, we mentioned earlier that they they definitely take their influence from John Ostrander's uh, what he did on the Suicide Squad, but it's a pretty pale imitation. It's a pretty shallow imitation of everything he did. I'd have to say. Mm-hmm. Um, I I haven't read any of the Williamson stuff. I don't even know if he's still the writer on it to be perfectly honest. I think Tom Taylor's writing it now. Okay. So Tom, uh, so I, I have less to say about those comics, but I will say that I saw the suicide squad movie and, uh, that was bad. <laughs> like it was, <laughs> it was just something that where it felt like they, they liked the idea of, uh, of cool looking bad guys of, you know, I guess it's in fashion to be bad, you know, the anti-hero. So they, they presented the suicide squad as anti-heroes as opposed to, you know, villains and criminals. And (laughs) yeah. So it, it, I'd say that they put a lot of elements in there to make you, look to Deadshot and Harley Quinn as people to root for, but in the wrong ways. And in addition to that, I would say that they focused heavily on on stylizing the movie as opposed to building it around the substance of what the Suicide Squad could be. Yeah. So, so really, the movie was a mess. And with all the production stuff, it... it it's pretty it's pretty easy to tell that uh with all the hijinks that w- happened around the production that it wasn't a surprise that the final product was what it was mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. you have anything to say about any of those comics or the I, I actually didn't watch the suicide squad movie i think i mentioned it in the <laughs> last episode where i i back i borrowed the movie from the library <laughs> and 
you know, I had it for nine weeks and I didn't watch it and I ended up returning it because <laughs> I just couldn't bring myself to get, I couldn't motivate myself to watch it. It just, yeah, everything about it screamed like it was going to be really bad. You were um, better off. Yeah, I don't feel like I yeah. missed anything. And I think your summary of it, uh, you know, that, that was Further cemented for me. that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I feel better about not watching it. In terms of more recent comics, uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't recommend anything besides the the John Ostrander stuff. I think there might have been a run of Suicide Squad in the later 90s, or maybe it was the mid to early 2000s. That one, I, I don't really remember anything about it. Um, but in, in terms of the stuff that's come out in the past... Uh, like decade? 10, <laughs> 10 years or so. Yeah. Yeah, like... I would I'd have to say all of those um, looked pretty bad, and and what I did read did not make me want to read more. Yeah, here's yeah. what I can say. What did you read? You you actually read some of it? Um, when the New Fifty Two stuff came out, I think I borrowed Volume One from the library. Wow, I was not aware of that. Yeah, I was you know just trying to read a lot of whatever, man, especially yeah. from the library, just to yeah. just to give it a chance, but. But, uh, yeah, it was just a waste of time. Yeah. Here, here's what I would say of the Suicide Squad that we did get, like, just from a visual observation. Um, when I look at the current Suicide Squad and the Suicide Squad that came out of the New 52, I looked at it and I was like, this is like if Hot Topic had made the Suicide <laughs> Squad. <laughs> yeah. And that in and of itself should tell you not to read it. Yeah. <laughs> that should tell you that in and of itself should tell you what my thoughts on the comic are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I also don't really like I really don't like how they made Harley Quinn a focal point of the series. Yeah. That is just something that I find displeasing. Yeah. Again, it it just felt like it was a vehicle to just. It felt like they were thinking, yeah. what could be mutually beneficial? We could put Harley Quinn in this, and it should theoretically boost the sales of this book, but it'll also boost her profile. Yeah, exactly. You know? They just want to showcase her in more comics. Yeah. So, I guess that's what they did. Yeah, but to be honest, she's not a character whose current incarnation I have any yeah. affection for whatsoever. Yeah. Well, like, when I think of Harley Quinn, I think of what she was like when she was originally created. You know, I, yeah. I, I like the way she was in Batman, the animated series. Yeah. And for a long time in the comics, that was the that model was that, the, yeah, that was the model that the comics emulated. Yeah. But it, it, it's just in the past, I don't know, nine or 10 years they've turned Harley into this hot topic kind of character where she's, she doesn't look like a Harley Quinn anymore. She's just, uh, she just looks like a crazy lady wearing makeup. <laughs> uh, I just imagined like a super villain who was like a crazy bag lady. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Um, so it, I find it because of that, I find it really hard to take her seriously as a character. Yeah. And I also find it, really uninteresting whenever people try to tell stories with that version of Harley mm. as the 
you know, as a as a primary draw. Yeah. I was going to say it feels like it it feels like they almost had the opposite intended effect, which was we're going to use these two things to boost each other's profile, but really what they did was they diminished both of them. Like Harley Quinn yeah. was less interesting and the Suicide Squad as a result was also less interesting. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, I I would even say just from observation that these new Suicide Squads felt more like they overly focused on Harley Quinn and Deadshot because they, and, and again, I don't, I don't have any ill will towards uh, Deadshot or anything. Like I, I like him as a character. I like the idea of Deadshot. I, I even like the original idea of Harley Quinn. But it doesn't feel like the Suicide Squad. It just feels from from what I've seen, yeah. it feels like it's the Deadshot Harley Quinn show. Yeah, yeah, and and I guess that gets to the heart of the matter, right? Because that's not what the Suicide Squad is about. It's it's not about Deadshot and Harley. If anything, it's about Amanda Waller. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and the other thing that the recent, more modern comics did that I didn't appreciate was they changed up Amanda Waller's character design around the New 52. Yeah. I think they might have, I don't know if they've changed it again since then, but I remember when they did that, they made her this, you know, like your typical svelte kind of uh, what what most men would consider an attractive body type, you know. when They wanted to give her sex past, appeal. Yeah, exactly. They tried to amp her sex appeal, whereas... In, in the past, in the old comics, she was just kind of this heavy set woman, you know, and like an older heavy set woman. But what made her fascinating wasn't the fact that she had sex appeal, but it was the fact that she was a strong personality. Yeah. And I think when they when they went away from that aspect of her character and they just it tried showed, to make her yeah. eye candy, that was a really bad decision. It showed how little they understood her and how little they thought of her. Heck, it also shows how little they thought of the audience, you know? It's like yeah, they just think that the audience is so dumb that they're just going to eat up, you know, a, a J. Scott Campbell drawing or something, you know? It's like yeah. if you draw a woman like that, then it'll it'll uh, sell more copies. And yeah. who cares what the quality of the story is? Yeah. It, yeah. I, I, I'd say that it, they missed the point of Amanda Waller. Like I was gonna mention that she was in the yeah in the comic she always came off as stockier and uh bolder like it it really felt like her name fit when they called yeah, her the wall she was the wall <laughs> it wasn't just you know a, a description of her personality but it was a to like some a degree description yeah it fit her physical demeanor and her physicality. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. Hmm. All right. Want to move on to the next property or character? Yeah, yeah. All right. What have we got next, Albert? Hit me. So, the big thing to come out of Fandom was another trailer for Wonder Woman 1984. We watched it. Okay. It exists. And now we <laughs> want to give you what we think are seminal wonder woman stories evergreen evergreen wonder woman stories. wonder woman stories so did you know that seminal means born of the semen uh 
I did not. I always thought that they were named after a tribe of Indians or Native Americans. (laughs) Shows what I know. (laughs) Uh, The Seminole tribe. Uh, (laughs) uh, Well... (laughs) Wonder Woman is not seminal in a liter- literal sense because she was not born of the semen. That's a very good point. That we found a way to make it. Uh, we found a way to work that into <laughs> that topic. <laughs> so, ladies that, and gentlemen, you're listening to Between the Gutters, where we keep it classy. <laughs> so, let's let's start off with this. What is it about Wonder Woman that's special? What what are the characteristics and what elements do you look for in an ideal Wonder Woman story? What are the characteristics that jump out about Wonder Woman to you? Hmm. I think, I mean, this might sound weird, but number one, it is that she's a woman who is, <laughs> yeah, I mean, she's, she's a woman. You know, like that, like you, you can't, like she's a character where if you're doing like some alternate version, you can't make her a man or anything, you know, like she's, she's got to be, a woman, yeah. Um, obviously, a strong woman—not just physically, but mentally, emotionally. Um, I guess, to some, in some way, uh, I guess an icon of, of feminism, right? Um, yes. Yeah. I guess the the general uh, concept or popular concept of feminism uh, and feministic ideals—that's kind of what. She represents as well as, uh, I guess, it, and if we go into a more, uh, I guess, comic booky or or heroic descriptions of what she's, what she represents, I guess I would say the thing that I always think about when I think about Wonder Woman is that she stands for the truth. She is a, a warrior and a princess, and she does what she thinks is right um, to achieve justice and peace. So she's someone who is not out to, to wage war, Yeah. but if war needs to be waged, she will be a warrior, you know? I do think that that's, so just for a little bit of context, uh, Wonder Woman is an Amazon who, um, she's had a, di- a, a few different changes to her origin. So I'm just going to give the, tr- the classic origin that I know. So like, if that's the, the, if the status quo isn't necessarily that at the moment, I, uh, you know, I, uh, feel free to correct me, Drew. Um, but she was, I believe, um, made from clay that was given life by Hippolyta. Is is that the yeah, traditional? Yeah, Hippolyta shaped her out of clay, I think, and I think the Greek gods. Oh right, right, right. You're yeah. right, right. So, um, you know, she was raised amongst the Amazons. That that's why she was literally not born of the semen. She was molded from clay. Yeah. So no, there is no uh, semen makeup of her whatsoever <laughs> this is uncomfortable at all <laughs> but um 
part of her origin was that she was raised amongst the Amazon to be a warrior, but this society was was hidden away from the rest of the world, from what they called the world of man. And they were highly advanced and they were they were basically the best versions of people that you could think of. So they were warriors. They were the, the, the most skilled warriors, but on top of that, they were artists and they were poets. They were, um, diplomats. Like they were just all around well-rounded human beings. And the time came when, uh, they wanted to reconnect with the world around them. Uh, Per my understanding, I believe it was during the era during World War II. So the idea was they needed to send an ambassador out from uh, Paradise Island to engage the world of man and to be an ambassador for peace and truth and mm-hmm. uh, I want to say justice, but I might just be taking that from Superman. general comics. Yeah, or Superman, oh, okay. exactly. Yeah, so. <laughs> Um, I think it's interesting that you mentioned that, um, (laughs) okay, first of all, yeah, she has to be a woman, so Wonder Man, you hear that? Pack your bags, never come back. (laughs) (laughs) Stay in the Marvel Universe, Wonder Man. Stay in the Marvel Universe. Uh, But I was going to say, if uh, if you've read her history through, uh, if you follow her history throughout, you'll see that Wonder Woman oddly enough, did get molded according to who was writing her at the time to meet feminist standards. And I don't mean feminist in the classical or, or in the typical way that we think of it, but like, you know, um, if, if there's any other way to describe it, but just pro-woman or whatever, right? Uh, but yeah, so... The first iteration of Wonder Woman, you have her as uh, a warrior and an Amazon. And it was very much in line with the Golden Age stuff that was coming out at the time. Uh, you know, it's I think that's Golden Age anyways. But it's very similar to uh, the mystery heroes of, of World War Two, And, you know, it was very, like, saccharine, very, like, pure stuff. And there came a period of time where I don't know what the story was because I, I, I hadn't read this era of Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman but I do mm-hmm. think there came a period of time where she does away with all that and she wears, like, white jumpsuit and becomes, like, a martial a se- artist. <laughs> I think she was a secret agent. She was a secret agent, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and she... I don't remember if she had her powers, but she did... Yeah, she did, like, Kung Fu. Which was <laughs> an interesting route to take, and uh, and I feel like when you when you mentioned earlier that she was a warrior and all that, I feel like that's that's a very modern version of Wonder Woman. Like the first time I'd ever seen that was probably Kingdom Come by Mark. Yeah, Wade. I was gonna say the same thing. Yeah, that was probably the first. That was the first time that someone had done a version of wonder woman that was like you know what she's an amazon what would a what would an, a modern day amazon truly be like what would a what what would a warrior be like knowing what we know of history and of uh, warrior cultures 
and he applied mm-hmm. it to Wonder Woman, and he really gave Mark Wade really gave her like a steel in her personality and in her character. So, um, yeah. So, like the 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 modern iteration of Wonder Woman is very much like I, I feel like the Warrior is very much at the forefront of who she is and what she's about. Whereas in the older, like in her way original iteration, uh, like she would just beat people up. Like, I don't know, like, I don't know if she like ever killed anyone, but this, the modern version of Wonder Woman is like very much a sword and shield warrior. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, like, yeah. uh, so... So I do think that some of the elements that make up her character, and, and this is just coming from listening to you earlier, but I do, I guess, I guess she, she does kind of, there's, the thing about Wonder Woman is I really do feel like she's like the most prominent female character. I know that in the current age, there are a lot of other women characters that get a lot of attention, um, but Wonder Woman for the longest time was head above shoulders above anyone else in terms of name recognition, I'd have to say. Yeah, yeah. You know, she was like the first and we never really Marvel would try to create you know, their versions of uh, a female character, like an iconic female character that would stand toe to toe with her. And, you know, DC would also occasionally roll out other characters that would try to gain as much traction and popularity but wonder woman for the longest time like when you think of the trinity at dc she was up there and yeah no one else batman wonder woman yeah exactly so no one really stood up there with her and she she owned that real estate for a really long time and i i do think that that's interesting and uh yeah and just like listening to you talk about uh what you thought about what makes wonder woman Wonder Woman, uh, I do think that there is an element of it that takes in, it's hard not to take in what modern uh, perspectives on women are and not apply it to her to some degree, Mm -hmm. right? Like, I'm not saying that she necessarily has to be, has to encapsulate everything about it, but, you know, it's hard not to cherry pick different views and modern ideas and apply it to her so yeah i I think uh with each iteration of wonder woman or not iteration but whenever a different writer takes on the task of writing wonder woman Mm. every every creator has their own uh perspective of or their own lens or the way that they filter their understanding of the character and how they tell a Wonder Woman story. Mm. So it it would be really hard to say that there's only it would be impossible to say that there's only one correct way to write Wonder Woman and that she has to be a specific way and these are her exact views and you can write out uh, a very specific uh, doctrinal statement of her beliefs or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very malleable based on who the writer of the, of the series is at the time. Yeah, but I think as long as the writers don't stray too far off the path, yeah, uh, you know, for the most part, the general, the general principles transcend 
time, you know, like the, the general principles of the character are, are evergreen. Yeah. Even though when you look at uh, feminism as a, as a, it's as an a evolving. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah. Feminism is constantly evolving. Yes. Even things uh, like feminist theories that are um, prevalent today. If you look back like 20 years ago, it wasn't necessarily the case, you know, and, and go Absolutely. back to like 30, 40, 50 years ago. And Wonder Woman was created back in the, in the forties. Yeah. So it's like feminism back then was a different concept from feminism today. Yeah. Um, but the, the evergreen concepts of her character, I think are her heroic ideals, which, which mm. are her, her, that she's a champion of, of peace. Um, you know, she's a, a princess who who protects her her people. Mm. She's a somebody who stands up for the truth. I mean, she has yeah. a, a weapon whose di- divine purpose is to expose the truth. <laughs> it's know? the lasso so, of truth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So th- it's it's things like that that are the things that will work in any era. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why um, that combined with just fascinating or fun adventures is the reason why she's endured so long. And yeah. that's probably why she has uh, the greatest name recognition out of all the different female superheroes out there is because, number one, she was created a long time ago. Mm. But even if you were to look back in time and see how many comic books and characters were created back in those days not too many of them have lasted this long but wonder woman has so that says something to us about why she's outlasted everything else in pop culture you know it's like totally there's so many other uh random characters that we don't even remember because they didn't last long enough past you know a couple of issues back in the 40s or way back then they died in the Suicide Squad. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, yeah, I, I totally uh, would happen. I, I, I agree with you. Um, and listening to you, I do think that the truth is is an element of her that you kind of have to have because no other character has that gimmick, and I, I feel kind of funny calling it a gimmick but uh that's there's something about that that's truly unique yeah it's like a gimmick the way that wrestlers have gimmicks so yeah in in that sense i would i definitely don't have a problem with you calling it a gimmick yeah the the other thing i was gonna say is um i mentioned earlier that uh the version of wonder woman that I guess I picture a lot is the Mark Wade uh, warrior woman. So I do think that for me personally, uh, when I think of Wonder Woman, I do think of someone who's well-rounded. So I I want to see a Wonder Woman who's not just a warrior, but also an, a diplomat, you know? Like yeah. peace through the sword. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that makes like, sense to me. Those, those are the the things that I like about Wonder Woman, and those are the elements that I want to see when I'm reading a Wonder Woman story. 
you know, someone who whose primary purpose is the truth and the promotion of peace, but who is not afraid and who is absolutely skilled in in combat and yeah 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 i agree so with with that said would you consider kingdom come to be one of the evergreen wonder woman stories or is kingdom come more of you know like a justice league story or you know what when we as we were talking about this i i i realized that i do actually think kingdom come is one of the uh Kingdom Come would be a, I think it's a evergreen story for several characters, but I, I do think it's it's one that highlights one woman as I as I see her. So I would say Kingdom Come would actually count as my, one of my uh, evergreen stories for one woman. Okay, okay, yeah, I can see that. I can see yeah. that. Uh, so for those of you who are listening, um, just in brief. Uh, you know, Kingdom Come was a story by Mark Wade and Alex Ross, and it's a story that takes place in the not too distant future in a world where, uh, where the heroes that we now know today have to coexist with a more violent and uh, brash type of superhero. You know, someone that is more in tune with uh, the anti-heroes that happen to be in fashion at the moment and Mm -hmm. it's just a story about how those two uh worldviews collide and ultimately how they how they will learn to coexist or don't coexist with each other Uh, Mm -hmm. i just wanted to keep that brief enough for those of you listening you know to, to to light a fire under you so that you go check it out yourself yeah, Kingdom Come is definitely one of the modern, or I don't even know if you call something that was twenty years old, over, <laughs> like twenty five years old. If, if that's if that still counts as modern, but yeah, it, it's it's definitely a classic. Yeah, that, certainly that still holds up today for yeah. sure. I can't wait till that we get Hot Topic Wonder Woman. <laughs> <laughs> She's gonna look like Harley Quinn. Yep, yep. Do you have any? Uh... Do you have any what are what are some comics that you have Drew? Man, I feel like with Wonder Woman, I've got quite a few that I would consider evergreen stories for sure. I would say in the past 20 years or so, we've had a really great amount of quality Wonder Woman stories. Yeah. Like a lot of the older stuff, I'd have to say, uh I'm not too big a fan of Maybe maybe we'll get to those um, later yeah. on. Yeah. But but uh, and let's start off with the the stuff that that uh, we do consider to be evergreen. So like the, the one of the first things that came to my mind was the name Greg Rucka. Mm. So Greg Rucka is a writer, longtime writer. Um, many he's written many things. In one of his uh, series, he's re- he's actually got two runs on Wonder Woman. And I would say that both of them are evergreen runs. But if, you know, again, reading a, an entire run of a series 
might be something daunting. So if, if I'm just going to give you one story to start off with from his first run, I would say check out the um, original graphic novel, Wonder Woman, The Heikatea. So The Heikatea, I don't know if that's actually a real uh, Greek ritual, but in in the in the story, it might have just been something that Greg Rucka made up. Mm. In, in the story, it's an ancient Greek ritual that bonds uh, a servant to a master in a relationship of mutual respect and servitude. So this is a, a comic that was drawn by J.G. Jones, inked by Wade Von Grodbadger, and lettered by Todd Klein, and colored by Dave Stewart. It's uh, it's the first Wonder Woman story that uh, Greg Rucka wrote before his run in the ongoing series began. And just to give you a summary of the plot of the Heikatea, it's about this. Really, the one of the focal points is, or the focal point is this young lady uh, named Danielle. She mm. has had a rough life where her sister. Uh, was basically taken advantage of by some bad men, uh, drugged and, and sexually abused. So Danielle actually manages to avenge her sister by, by killing these bad men. And she lives in Gotham City. So you know what that means. Yeah. That means Batman. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so technically, she's she's a murderer. Uh, I mean, she's she's gone out and, and like actually tracked down and hunted and killed um, some of the drug dealers and, and sexual abusers that uh, harmed her, her sister. So Batman is after her. She escapes him. She ends up in New York City at the Themis the embassy of Themyscira, where uh, Diana lives, where Wonder Woman lives. And she invokes the Heikatea to win Wonder Woman's protection essentially so she can get her protection from Batman. <laughs> yeah. So this puts Batman and Wonder Woman at odds because even though Danielle escaped Batman, he's the world's greatest detective, so he can track her down. He tracks her down to where Wonder Woman is and tries to explain the situation. But because Wonder Woman takes her oaths very seriously, she's not going to let Batman take this girl. And granted, she doesn't know everything that this girl has been through. She knows that she has a a really heavy past, but she may not exactly know that Danielle has killed these men. So as, as far as Wonder Woman, from her perspective, she's going to uphold her oath, you know, because the truth of the oath has to take precedence over Batman's demands for, for justice. Yeah. So you get that, that tension between Batman trying to bring this girl back into the police so she can, um, you know, face her crimes mm. in the court of law versus Wonder Woman who has pledged herself and given her word which she does not break to this girl and her protection. So you get to see this ideological conflict between Batman and Wonder Woman. Uh, f yeah, from that philosophical standpoint, you get to see a conflict between Wonder Woman and Batman from a physical standpoint because they have to, they actually fight. Mm. Um, long story short, Wonder Woman beats him down. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's what you'd expect. Yeah, it's exactly yeah, yeah. what you would expect. 
you know, she doesn't have kryptonite as a weakness. So Batman really can't do anything to Wonder Woman. (laughs) I would have been surprised if he had won. (laughs) (laughs) And you also get the, the conflict between their two wills because even though Batman is physically inferior to Wonder Woman and has no chance of beating her in a fight. He's the kind of guy who has the will of a force of nature because he is not going to be deterred. He's not going to falter. He's not going to waver in achieving his goal. And he'll do anything he possibly can to gain victory. He will, he will cheat if possible to, to win. You know, that's, that's just what Batman does. Yeah. That's what he. That's what he is. So to see that, uh, to play see out. that play out against Wonder Woman, who on her, you know, she's also very strong-willed. She's, you could easily argue that she is just as much a force of nature as Batman is. She is not somebody who, who ever gives up. She is competitive. She is fierce. And she is dauntless. So to see the conflict play out from an ideological standpoint, from a physical standpoint, and from the standpoint of, of just sheer character, uh, willpower, it's a really compelling story. And it, without diminishing or, or being uh, demeaning to Batman or Wonder Woman, mm. you get a really satisfying conclusion that that ends up showing... Mostly, it's a Wonder Woman story, so you you still mostly see like why Wonder Woman is so great, but it's not at the cost of diminishing Batman or making him seem lesser than he actually is. Mm. And I, I don't want to spoil the ending. I actually really like the ending. Mm. Uh, if you look at the cover to the to the comic, and uh, yeah, I'll try to post this one up on our Instagram so people can see if they don't already know but the the cover of the comic jg jones himself he he pencils the interiors but he actually painted the cover and the cover is a grimacing batman lying on the floor with his eyes closed uh he's just grimacing his his teeth are clenched and he's lying on the on the ground and all you see is wonder woman's boot standing on his head (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's a pretty great cover I, i like that cover a lot and that is a scene that happens uh, in the comic itself so you, you will if you pick this comic up because of the cover you will not feel cheated when you read the comic because that actually does happen and it's also symbolic of the story as well nice did you ever read the Haikate albert i didn't but i know greg rucka's work on uh other things and he's a dude that don't disappoint you know he's he's very solid and He's got two, you mentioned earlier, he's had two runs that were, they're a decent amount of time apart from one another, but yeah, uh, you know, it's pretty impressive that, you know, he, he did that first run and he was able to come back and he did it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In fact, uh, you helped me order that first the first volume of his second run in uh, deluxe hardcover so i am i'm waiting to crack into that and read that myself 
Yeah, yeah, and you found Volume Two, the Volume Two Deluxe hardcover, on sale for a dollar, didn't you? I did. We, uh, I, you know, much love to uh, Doctor Comics and Mister Games. Uh, Oakland, California. Oakland, California. They they had an amazing sale where they were selling comics for a dollar, and I found a entire deluxe hardcover edition. $35 value comic of Wonder Woman for a dollar. That's a win. Yeah, that really is. That, that's, that is triumphant. Yep. I, uh, I'm always going to have that feeling. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, speaking of uh, Greg Rucka's second run, this was the run he did um, just a year or two ago during the Rebirth, DC Rebirth era. Mm. I would say that entire run is an evergreen story and i i would say i think it's only 24 25 issues That's so right. it's it's not so. as long you can actually i don't think it's as daunting um but if i had to pick a single story from it it would be hard because um all of the all of the story arcs connect and i think when you read the first one you'll definitely just want to see how everything plays out because he does take time um with a year one story where he retells wonder woman's origin for the dc rebirth era mm. and he does a great job with that and he's able to use that as a foundational point to build up the characters that become important in the rest of his stories and he had a lot of great artists working with him on that he had uh liam sharp uh bill Quist, evely um i think it was nicola scott who did the year one story and all, yeah, all of the artwork is, is great, even though I, I tend to be the person who prefers one artist doing an entire run. Mm. Uh, with the Greg Rucka run, because they were drawing uh, different time periods, it, it worked out. So, yeah. There was a reason for recommend it. it. Yeah, there was a the different art styles. It. Yeah. 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 Definitely would recommend that. I forget when that came out. Was was that a thing where uh, they were making Rucka do it bi-weekly or something like that? Um, I don't remember if it was bi-weekly. It, it's possible. I, I, I'm not sure. But yeah, mm. I think it was. I don't know if it was bi-weekly every week, but maybe. Mm. Or not bi-weekly every week. I don't know if the entire run was bi-weekly. Um, because I, I, I basically waited to buy the run. Um, yeah, yeah until I could get it because I, I figured that they would make a hardcover so I had to get the hardcovers for sure for sure I, I knew it was something I wanted to own after I read some from the library hmm. do you want to keep going with uh with your next one yeah yeah this is a another uh, run that I'm gonna pick but it's the Brian Azzarello and Cliff Chang run yep this was the new 52 era Wonder Woman. And it was the era right before the the one that we just mentioned. Yeah, yeah. So th this is actually before the Greg Rucka run. New 52. Um, you and I rag on the new 52 all the time because it was such a horrible run for a horrible everyone. era in DC. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was a horrible time for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> but there was one good thing that came out of it. Yeah, exactly. I'll genuinely say that the Azarello Chang Wonder Woman was the one truly great series that we got. And 
this was a series that that did it did have a few fill in artists here and there like Cliff Cliff Chang, awesome artist, uh, one of my favorite artists, but he didn't uh, draw every single issue. But we got some art from we got some issues from from guys like Tony Akins and uh, Garan Suzuka. I Ooh. really like Garan Suzuka. Yeah. So friend of the, uh, he's a friend of the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He uh, he follows us on Instagram and he's interacted with us a few times. Yeah. Seems great, like a cool dude. Yeah. Great dude. Yeah. Great so art. I definitely enjoy his work. But the Azarello and Cliff Chang Wonder Woman run is very different from every other Wonder Woman because this era, uh, the New 52 era, they were trying to do all sorts of stuff with rewriting everybody's continuity. So Azarello and Chang decided to pretty much do their own thing yeah. from the get-go. They they rewrote the whole... Uh, they gave her a new origin. Uh, they gave her a different supporting... A new supporting cast of characters. And what they... The basic concept of their run of Wonder Woman was that it was a Greek tragedy crossed over with... Um, I guess a noirish kind of crime story. Like if mm. you imagine, uh, if you imagine the pantheon of Greek gods as a mafia family, <laughs> that's that's kind of what we get with the Wonder Woman story. I like here. that. I like that. Yeah. Well, I forget. Did you did you read this run, Albert? I did. I read. Uh, I don't remember if I ever finished it. But I did read a significant portion of it. I, I at least read two thirds of it. And yeah, it was something that what jumped out at me, or like one of the things that I really liked about it was the fact that, like you mentioned earlier, they they did a so this was in an era where they were um, quote I'm doing air quotes right now, but <laughs> fixing fixing the DC universe continuity. So, um, you know, Brian Azzarello and Cliff Chang had the, uh, the free range to basically reinvent Wonder Woman. And yeah. one of the things that uh, I'll admit is that I, okay, this is fanboyish of me, and I'll, I admit that, but I was never a huge fan of her rogues gallery. Like I, mm-hmm. I, I never really got how any of her villains were able to stand toe to toe with her, um, just on a on on a power level. So what one of the things that I did like that uh, a lot that Azarello and uh, Chang did was they because Wonder Woman exists as a part of or or her origin stems from Greek mythology. They just used greek mythology to fill her rogues gallery so she was you know she she had enemies in Ares and apollo and uh there were even other uh lesser known uh greek gods that i was wasn't too familiar with but mm-hmm. they made it work you know and yeah. uh i i thought it was a pretty well done a well done rogues gallery for her yeah absolutely yeah, absolutely. And the one other thing that I'll mention, and I, I hope it's not a spoiler, but 
they even found a way to tie her into the new gods, into the fourth world. Yep, I which was, was going like, to mention that too. I love that stuff. Yeah, it, it, like it, it's it's such a simple, it's such a little thing, but like we, it, it feels like how come no other writer ever thought to to tie these two things together? Yeah, you know. And, yeah, but it was like such a small thing, and for them to do it, it it. It blew my mind when I saw the the first scene that was kind of a teaser. That was a teaser for the that was a teaser that implied that there was some connection between these two pantheons. Yeah, I was really impressed because I was not expecting it whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I think it was issue. I want to say like the end of issue twelve. I could be wrong on the number, but yeah, uh, I remember flipping through the issue at the store yeah and at the very end of the issue uh in a kind of a postscript epilogue type of scene you just see uh the sound effect spelling boom you know to signify the boom tube yeah and, and then you, you see the outline of orion's helmet yeah and i was like whoa was yeah. that a, i did not expect them to bring orion into the story and and yeah. orion ends up becoming a a supporting character, a supporting cast member in, yeah. in her story. And what I, a tease. I thought it was, yeah, <laughs> that was really well done. Like the artwork and the framing, the setup, it was incredible. Like I was, yeah. when I saw the boom, I was like, oh man, it's on, you know? <laughs> like we're going to see some new gods up in here. Yeah. Orion is in this. And the, the funny thing is, is how they portrayed Orion. They portrayed Orion as this male chauvinist pig. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I thought that was really funny, but it, it it was also true to his character, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. I can see that. And the other thing that I would add is if, okay, you know, this is something that I would observe as as just someone who's just very briefly aware of, like, Greek mythology, but from what I do know of Greek mythology, like a lot of those guys, a lot of those stories were centered around a lot of the characters being just gross to women. Yep. <laughs> so the idea yep. that, you know, these new gods mirrored this behavior, it totally made <laughs> sense, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and it works again for one woman because like, like we mentioned in terms of, you know, evergreen qualities and characteristics for her is she exists as a strong woman in the world of men. Yeah. You know, and yeah. that, that makes sense. You know, it pulls from that idea. So I, I'm, I'm behind it. Absolutely. I stand with it. And, and the run, the Azarello and Chang run again, like the Greg Rucker run, this is a run where I, I don't think I can just, pull out one specific issue or story arc. I think somebody just has to start at the beginning and, and get into it that way. You know, it's yeah. like the whole thing is basically a 36 issue novel. Mm. It, it's completely satisfying. You get a beginning, middle and an end. It doesn't, you know, it, it has a real conclusion to it. So you don't have to worry about having to read the next uh, story written by somebody else like it, it doesn't really it 
It's self-contained. Yeah, it's self completely self-contained. You have anything else you want to share? In terms uh, of evergreen stories? Let's see. Uh, one of the ones that I I offered for the list was... Uh, it's actually a Justice League comic, or JLA, technically. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. called Divided We Fall. And uh, that's that's the collection, but there, there are multiple stories in it. And uh, the ones that jump out to me are are well it's it's the queen of fables story right at the beginning of it mm-hmm. so i mentioned earlier that uh mark wade wrote kingdom come and i consider kingdom come the uh, an evergreen story for wonder woman and oddly enough he wrote this version of the justice league or this run of the justice league as well so i guess it would make sense that i I was drawn to to it or to his vision of what Wonder Woman is on multiple levels or on multiple occasions rather. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the thing that uh that drew me into uh that first story, the the Queen of Fables story specifically is uh although it's a Justice League comic and it's really about the ensemble and Mark Wade make sure to give all of them time to shine. Uh, the first story is a pretty Wonder Woman-centric story. It's about the... It, it's about a, a fictional being that invades the real world, and she embodies the, the concept of the evil evil queen slash uh uh what do you call it like stepmother evil queen slash stepmother from like Grimm's fairy tales mm-hmm. and uh and she she invades the real world with characters from from stories basically you know uh, she's using the um she's using her magic to invade the real world with so you you have like a gingerbread house where the some of the justice league get trapped and she'll have you know the woodsman working for her and <laughs> it's 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 a pretty crazy idea cuz i i really feel like it tackles wonder woman on multiple levels cuz yeah you know wonder woman's a princess and Traditionally in these stories, uh, you know, the princess is kind of just this helpless bystander. And one woman certainly is not that in this story. She, even though there is a moment in it where she she does get, where, where she's befallen by a mysterious sleeping sickness. But, but this story does really focus on one woman as a focal point from for on the team you know and even during the whole run uh during the whole run uh that mark wade is writing there's there's con- there's a bunch of like really interesting small moments that he interjects in the story that that i always really appreciated for mm-hmm. for one thing like one of the moments that i i remember was there 
Wonder Woman is the only woman on this team of like six dudes or seven dudes, depending on uh, who you have on the team at, at a particular point in time. And mm-hmm. the way that Mark Wade plays it is he's, I guess he's just writing what that would be like for a woman to be, <laughs> to be, you know, toe to toe with all these men on, on this team. And it, I, I, I never really felt like I had seen that prior to that, you know? Yeah. Um, like, uh, there were little things like, um, how she would be, there was, there was like a, a B story about how Aquaman and Wonder Woman were, were kind of thrown together. And I think that was in this, and they were constantly, it, it was a story about how they were, uh, hanging out together and it yeah, they were hanging out. To, uh, they weren't hanging out together. They they were on a mission together. But you know, he Aquaman ends up holding her lasso of truth, and he he's just like, I don't get why people think we need to. Uh, we would get along all the time just because we're. They think we're both royalty, so uh, automatically they think we have like so much in common. You know, it's uh-huh. like one of those moments. But um, yeah, back to the the main Queen of Fable story. Like I, the one of the other levels that it that ideas that they play with is the idea of mythology. And uh, I mentioned earlier that Wonder Woman was never really a character where I really, where I felt like I had too much interest in her rogues gallery. So when he created the the character of the queen of fables and uh, used their, used their mythologies, their, their different mythologies and, uh and the fable and used fables as a foundation for their animus towards one another or rather for the animus of the queen of fables towards diana uh that kind of blew my mind you know i was like that is that's a clever way to write to create a new villain for wonder woman and to work the the greek uh, to to work to play with the Greek mythology aspect of her her backstory, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's almost like she got her own uh, wicked stepmother or something. Yeah, like exactly. A, like a wicked witch or something that was that had an agenda against her. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. So it's just prior to this, the the only villains I had ever seen from Wonder Woman were. Silver Swan and Cheetah and yeah, I guess Cersei. Cersei was probably the one that made the most sense to me, but like I Don't forget about Giganta. Oh, Giganta. I, I guess in terms <laughs> of physical physicality, she was a man. A woman that woman. grows into a giant fighting Wonder Woman. <laughs> Nothing That's makes prob- more sense than that. <laughs> what is the what is the opposite number of a Amazon uh, a Greek Amazonian princess? A giant woman. <laughs> or a cheetah. Or a cheetah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so I I do have a lot of appreciation, uh, appreciation for Divided We Fall and for the Queen of Fables story. Like I, I really do like what Mark Wade does with Wonder Woman and just how he plays with her 
on the team and, you know, the dynamics that he gives her. Mm-hmm. And it's something that he goes back to a lot. Like uh, I mentioned earlier, again, he, he did write Kingdom Come as well. And he's, I, I'd say that prior to reading that, I I was with you in the sense that I wasn't really a fan of the older woman, Wonder Woman stuff. Like I recognized Wonder Woman just because she was so prominent in comics, but I had yet to read a comic where I... Yeah. But give you love for her. Yeah, yeah, where I cared about her, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so up until that point, up until Divided We Fall and the Queen of Fables story, I would say I... I or Andy and Kingdom Come even, I would say I I, I wasn't able to find the road to caring about her. Yeah. You know, I mean, I feel like the elements were there. I just had yet to see them realized. You, you liked Wonder Woman as a concept back then, but yeah. you never read a story that made you made you uh, excited to like her. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and, and you did mention uh, earlier on in the episode that it wasn't until recent years that we started getting more and more uh, good Wonder Woman stories, like the Greg Rucka and the Azarella and Chang stuff. Um, I do feel like, yeah, I'd probably say up until uh, Kingdom Come, like prior to that, there were, hadn't been much that I'd seen. Um, some people yeah. might argue differently, but we, we can talk about that later. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And I want to mention one more thing, um, and this might not necessarily be the whole comic, but one of the other things that, or one of the other comics where Wonder Woman jumps out at me is actually New Frontier. I did, mm, We didn't put that on yeah. the list, but she does play a part in that, and I do think her characterization in the scenes that I did see and the scenes that I remember her from, those are... As far as I'm concerned, those are pretty accurate depictions of her at uh, on a on a conceptual slash spiritual level. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah. The New Frontier by Darwin Cook. Everybody, you got to check it out if you haven't. It's a uh, one of those stories that it tells a wide story about the entire early DC years universe. of the DC universe. Yeah, yeah, it's it's like a Silver Age. Uh, it, it kind of imagines what would have happened in the silver age if you know a big event if there was a reason for a big story to be told about how the silver age came about um, yeah so i guess in a in a in a lot of ways it, it's similar in scope to kingdom come if you look at if you consider kingdom come a story that that talks about that serves as a commentary about the modern age of comics and what people think about heroism. You can take the new frontier by Darwin cook and look at that as a commentary on this kind of 1960s uh, American idealism of heroism. Mm. Yeah. Like I, I think it's fair to say that it's, it's a story that takes place in the silver age, but it's told through the lens of modern uh, context, I guess. Yeah, modern sensibilities. Modern sensibilities, yeah. You know, speaking of the JLA, there's another JLA story that makes my list for Evergreen Wonder Woman stories. 
And that story is Golden Perfect uh, by Joe Kelly and Doug Mankey. I think it's issues, I want to say like issues 62 to 64 of the JLA series. So if you uh, look it up on Comixology or or uh, look for the trade, it's uh, Golden Perfect is the name of the story. And this story, uh, just to briefly summarize it, it's a story where the JLA face, they encounter uh, this, I guess it's like a secret civilization or, or hidden city that's also i guess it's like a utopia but there's a like a dark secret to the utopia and and it involves a a young boy who gets separated from his mother so that this utopia can continue to be a utopia so it basically what wonder woman does is she doesn't like the idea of a boy being separated from from his mother so she kind of intervenes in this uh hidden society's uh rituals and when she does that it not only causes it not only causes a lot of chaos in that city but it also breaks the lasso of truth and mm-hmm. with the lasso of truth broken the lasso of truth um also known as the golden perfect uh, the titular golden perfect when it gets broken the entire concept of truth becomes unraveled <laughs> so I, crazy I thought was idea. A, yeah i thought it was a really crazy idea that worked really well to illustrate how she how wonder woman is so closely tied to the tr- idea of the truth yeah like you, in the story what what happens is you, you see stuff like two plus two uh no longer equals four, you know, like yeah. everything that is true becomes unraveled. And it, it's almost like this, uh, I don't know if it's meant to be like a commentary on postmodernism and, and uh, the ideas of uh, relative truth, but I enjoy the ideas that it makes me think about, you know, like it, yeah, yeah. whether or not it's a commentary, it, it's, it's something that makes you think about, um, why, why is it that we accept uh, certain things as true and, and other things as that? We, how come there are things that we, we know for absolutely are true, but there are also things where people can say, oh, what's true for you isn't necessarily true for me. Like, how yeah. does that make sense? You know, like if the truth is actually something that's absolute, how can, how can we be in a world where, how can we function in a world where people where we have our often, our selective truths. <laughs> yeah, we have selective truths and people often disagree on what yeah. the truth is. So it it, it kind of makes you think about stuff like that, which is pretty fun f- coming from a superhero comic. It's also oddly prescient. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What that, was the what was a the good one, point? What was the one thing you were telling me about um how one of the scenes was about the earth being flat? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, people always think people still think there are still people out there who think the earth is flat. So, yeah, you know, regardless of what is truth or not, you know, people still choose whether they want to accept the truth. No, but I mean, in the story, was wasn't there something about the earth being flat? Yeah, yeah, that that's what happened when the truth got unraveled. The earth yeah. was flat. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, 
it, Joe Kelly was uh, he's got future vision. <laughs> yeah, it's it's weird how how what is it's like been almost twenty years since he wrote this story. N- now there's I didn't even know back then that there was a flat Earth movement. Mm. You know, but but now that we have the internet, I've learned that there's a flat Earth movement. They've coalesced. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, I do feel like when we mentioned earlier um, the themes and ideas that, that, that sum up the essence of Wonder Woman, like, I, I do think the Golden Perfect specifically does address that. I, I, yeah, it's... Yeah, when we when you were mentioning how how closely in tune with the concept of truth she is, so much so that by breaking the lasso, it unravels reality. Yeah, it's it's crazy, but it's, I, I, yeah, it's a crazy big superhero idea that only works in a comic like JLA. And I would I would even say it. it specifically applies to Wonder Woman. You know, it it's not a story that I, I feel you can really tie to too many other characters. Yeah, exactly. Like that wouldn't if you took Wonder Woman out of the equation, the story wouldn't really work at all. Yeah. It, I don't it, you couldn't do it with Batman or Superman or Martian Manhunter or Flash, yeah. Green Lantern, Plastic Man. Exactly. I was gonna say like, oh, so if you steal Plastic Man's plastic plasticity you're gonna you know it it's gonna take away the foundations of truth it doesn't it doesn't work (laughs) if you take off batman's utility belt all you're gonna see is his drawers dropping now if you told the story about pants dropping without a utility belt then okay (laughs) i'll take that Uh, another story that I wanted to include on the list was we mentioned earlier that we weren't too familiar or even fond of the older Wonder Woman stories, but there is one story that I have here, and I think relatively it's older, but it's certainly nowhere near as old as uh, Wonder Woman in her early years. Uh, the one story that I want to mention here is a mini series called The Legend of Wonder Woman. It's by uh, Kurt Busiek and Trina Robbins, and this was uh... man. Okay, how do I give the backstory in this? So this was dur- this was a story that was written around the time of uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths. So we mentioned earlier the New Fifty Two and Rebirth. This was one of the earliest initiatives by DC Comics to uh, redo their entire universe because they were feeling, they as a company, as a publisher, was feeling that the the history that they had developed for all of their characters had become overwhelming and burdensome. So they needed to wipe out everything that we had known in the past about all the characters and we need, they needed to 
repackage it and represent it to modern audiences so that quote unquote people would be able to make sense of it. Mm-hmm. So so in this era they were ending a bunch of comic books they were bringing an end to a bunch of stories um as we knew them and we saw some we saw things like uh superman uh what was the superman story uh shoot uh man of steel not man of steel uh the the one written by alan moore oh uh whatever happened whatever happened to the man of tomorrow right so we saw things like whatever happened to the man of tomorrow where you know we got a final story for that version of superman but a lesser known story is the legend of wonder woman which was uh, a story that for all intents and purposes was doing the same thing for wonder woman and coming to this i i recent i found the the four issues of it fairly recently and i had i remember reading about it in an article someone had uh recommended where they alluded to whatever happened to the man of tomorrow and how this was a hidden gem and um seeing as how i'd never read any of the old wonder woman stories i decided to pick these issues up i was intrigued by the idea that um they had done a story like that for wonder woman as well and Mm -hmm. reading it i I will say, as someone who was familiar with any of her old uh, backstory, it was it was some pretty fun stuff. You know, it, it introduced me to a lot of the old villains and supporting characters that she had accumulated over all of the years that she had existed prior to the retcon, and it's a story that serves as an acknowledgement of all of that history as well as a final farewell. So I, I do think as someone who wasn't familiar with Wonder Woman and like what her backstory or, or the specific details about her backstory and the, the world that she inhabited as someone who wasn't familiar with those things, I picked these four issues up. I read them. And it was educational, you know. I I, mm-hmm. I was able to get exposure to what that what the world of that Wonder Woman was like, and I, I'll I'll say that it was an enjoyable read, and I do think that it's it was educational and in a in a fun way, I'd say. Yeah, yeah, and it's uh, got some pretty classic artwork from the legend trina robbins yeah it's got love for wonder woman you know if uh, like uh kurt busiek this is i don't know if this was one of his earlier works i feel like it has to be yeah wasn't yeah i think so i mean he had credits prior to that i think but it's definitely from that era before he became known as the guy who wrote Marvels. Yeah, he exactly, exactly. This was the this was before he became the the guy that we know, essentially, yeah. right? Yeah, and he he really rose to prominence after Marvels. So this was before he became a big name dude. Yeah, well before, and it's uh, if you've ever read, if you're not familiar with Kurt Busiek, he's he's a guy who. He's a comics fan who brought that his love for comics to his writing. And you definitely see that 
in this one woman because it, it's it's just full of knowledge of things that most people aren't aware of you know comics related things of one woman's backstory and he just tells he he tells it in a way that that makes it accessible to 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 the readers yeah yeah you You don't have to know anything about wonder woman to enjoy that story yeah totally totally so that's that's why i think it's uh that's why it's my pick for an evergreen wonder woman story yeah i'm only thing is i don't know how easy it is to find that i mean it's probably on comiXology but it, it feels like one of those stories that that uh, has never been collected into a trade paperback or anything. I think they just released one recently. Uh, oh, did they? Oh, that's like, good. Maybe like a couple of years ago. Like I, I don't want to say like recently, recently, but I, I remember that they released a deluxe hardcover. I, I want to say it was a deluxe hardcover. Oh, like, really? Okay, that's recently. great. Yeah, that's great to know. So, uh, and I do remember checking, and it's definitely on Comicsology as well. Nice. Yeah. Very nice. A couple other evergreen Wonder Woman stories. It feels like, yeah, we got a lot because, uh, and these are all, most of these are stories other than Legend of Wonder Woman. All of these are stories that came out in the past uh, 20 years or so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, I've got a couple of, a uh, couple more. And these are uh, original graphic novels, uh, meaning that they're not collected editions of issues, but they're just longer works that were published in in hardcover form but one of them is specifically for the hardcover format yeah one of them is earth one wonder woman earth one by Mm -hmm. grant morrison yannick paquette and nathan fairbairn um and yeah i'll just share the other one too the other one that i that i have is wonder woman the true amazon which is solo joint by jill thompson Mm -hmm. But uh, both of these came out, I think, relatively close to one another. Um, I think they're. Let me check the super close to one another. Indicios here. Uh, yeah, yeah, they're, they're both 2016. Both of them came out in, in 2016. I, I don't remember like what month or how many months separated them, mm. but it's interesting that they both came out that year because uh, each of these is actually another origin story of Wonder Woman. and it's weird because when i think about it i typically get tired of reading origin stories but there's just something about both of these comics that makes them fun reads Mm. worthwhile reads yeah and memorable reads in their own way yeah let's let's take uh earth one like this is a a reimagining of wonder woman like i guess in a way if you think about what marvel did with the ultimate universe back when the ultimate universe first began mm. earth one is is kind of like that where um uh, it introduces the idea of wonder woman and brings her into the world in in the in the modern age with where you don't have to consider um the implications of anything else in the dc universe where it's just wonder woman mm. uh entering man's world for the first time mm. And Morrison uh, introduce Morrison and Paquette do a really good job introducing her supporting cast. Uh, 
like the cast that that she's known for, including Steve Trevor and Etta Candy, mm. uh, the other Amazons. The, the artwork one... is phenomenal in this comic. Yeah. So... Anna Krakow's uh, art is just gorgeous in it. Yeah. Like before this comic, I always thought he was a pretty good artist, uh, especially in terms of his his figure work and his uh yeah basically his mainly his figure work and his his action scenes but in this comic he does a lot of things with layouts and and graphic design elements that i think really make his work sing and the colors are just so bold and vibrant that you feel it's just fun to look at man even if you don't read the words and you just flip through it and look at the pictures it's it's fun to look at you see all sorts of clever uh page designs clever page layouts he uses the lasso of truth as a recurring motif to as a panel border you know mm-hmm. it's just things like that that really add to the tone of it um and morrison writes a story that's i guess in a way it's more overtly uh feministic um he did say i remember from an interview where he wanted to draw more from what's his name leonard malton malton william i think leonard malton is a movie critic dude oh okay (laughs) is it mars i think i I think you're thinking of a william malton marston yeah of wonder woman yeah exactly um Yeah. yeah he wanted to draw more from the original some of the original ideas from uh that that i guess was originally intended for wonder woman yeah and if you look at william moulton marston's original wonder woman stories from the 40s there's a lot of weird bondage stuff going on there man (laughs) (laughs) it's it's weird to think that that was uh that that was in a comic book for kids back in the 40s you know (laughs) yeah i mean the thing that (laughs) The funny thing to know is that if you look into his backstory, the man, uh, William, what was his name again? William Moulton Marsden? Yeah. Yeah. The man himself, he, uh, he, he had a lifestyle. That guy was, was a swinging cat. <laughs> yeah. I, I believe he was like a polygamist or something. Yeah. And, um. I, I guess you could call him, like, I, I don't even know if proto-feminist is the term, but um, I, I, he viewed himself as something of a feminist and also applied a lot of uh, BD, BDSM elements to to his writing. Like, I again, the like one of the things that I remember is Wonder Woman's weakness in that in those early series, her, she gets tied up. Yeah, her weakness was being bound. So, yeah. so there were constantly stories where men would bind her, and that was his statement on the state of <laughs> feminism. But it was also so, it was also something that he took from his life being into that lifestyle. <laughs> yeah, you know? he had to. Uh... Two two lovers that he lived with. Yeah, yeah. 
Also, did you know that he was the guy who invented the lie detector? I do. I did know that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a funny tidbit. So it kind of makes sense that he, that the lasso of truth was a thing, right? Yeah, exactly. That he would work that into his character. Yeah. Uh, But I, yeah, I do remember um, reading an interview where Morrison was talking about how he wanted to take those elements and put them more at the forefront of uh, this version of Wonder Woman. And yeah, I remember reading uh, the the Earth One Wonder Woman, and it really did feel like it really felt like it was a fish out of water story, mm-hmm. and that that made sense because it was Wonder Woman entering man's world for the first time, and it was almost like she was. I, I don't want to say naive, but she was, but I feel she was like learning that, a new culture. Yeah. She was learning a new culture and, uh, it, it felt like all of the hangups of man's world did not apply to her at all because she didn't have that cultural context to, yeah, to shape her, her view of the world. Like <laughs> one of the yeah. scenes that I remember is, so she's an Amazon on this island with nothing but women, and uh, Steve Trevor crash lands on the on on the island, and it's the first time she ever sees a man, and she's fascinated by this 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 creature, and he's just talking to her, and she she just basically slips her hands down his pants, and she's like. What are you? <laughs> <laughs> He's just like, whoa! <laughs> I mean, there's there's an almost like purity or an innocence to like how naive that is, but, but on the other hand, it kind of makes sense. Like, I could see that, like, if she truly was this creature. Or a being from this world that was so far removed, and she had no uh, idea how, like, weird that was. <laughs> it would make sense that she would behave that way, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, it, it shows just how bold and how unabashed she is. Yep. While yep. also being, again, like, naive about it. So, it... it yeah, it, it's, <laughs> it's a funny moment, but it, it, I get it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a, I actually haven't read volume two of Ur- the Earth One volume two. Um, so I need to track that down and pick it up so I can read it at some point. I thought but you volume one is a great origin story for Wonder Woman. Yeah. And then the other one that I mentioned, Wonder Woman, The True Amazon by Joel Thompson. This one is another fantastic origin story. It it doesn't go, uh, it's not as, I guess, radical as Earth One. Mm. This one's probably, I would, if I were to describe it, I'd say it, it's more, uh, more friendly to, to all, all ages. I think there might be like, one use of the of the word damn so i don't know if you'd give it to like a little kid yeah but but like otherwise it's it's a comic that 
it's it's not so steeped into the weird bondage stuff that influenced uh, William Moulton Marston, you know? <laughs> there's, there's none of that weird subtext going on. It's more of just a straight-up uh, coming-of-age story written and and drawn and painted by the same creator, Jill Thompson, super talented yeah. artist. She painted the entire thing in, in watercolor. Like I was, if you have the hardcover and there's a, a whole sketchbook in the back where she talks about her process. So she actually penciled the artwork. She did not use any ink and all of the different tones and, and shades and anything that looks like a line of ink is, is actually watercolor. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Like my, my first impression of the book was just how beautiful it was. Yeah. It's, it's almost like reading like something out of a fairy tale, you know? It's yeah, just, it really it's is. It's just so pretty to look at. Yeah. In her, in her commentary in the back where she talks about her process, she says uh, after she finished penciling, the pages uh she would actually she would so she she penciled the pages and i think she scanned them or something so she could paint over them and the, the painting itself you know just painting one page that would probably take her 10 to 14 hours Oof. so it's, it's a true labor of love but, but it it's so immaculate looking like when you look at it it like if you didn't know that she didn't ink it you would think that she inked parts of it you know like there's like the outlines and and things like that it looks like it's inked but it's not mm -hmm. the story is yeah it's just a it's not a, dressed but it's a it's a coming of age story that that's more of the traditional wonder woman origin where she's uh you know she grows up on paradise island and she doesn't understand why that she's different from all the other amazons mm. and then there's that you know the, the tournament to to prove who gets to be wonder woman and have the mantle of wonder woman and it just shows you that that whole journey of her growing up and becoming their ambassador to man's world yeah yeah i, I really like it a lot man it, it's it, it might not have the the bizarre subtext that some of these other stories have like the grant morrison story but this is just a like a really good pure-hearted type of uh adventure coming of age type yeah. of story because you really see uh her qualities at play even when she's a young girl a young lady um just someone who's full of courage and and uh, someone who learns how to overcome selfishness to become more selfless, mm. and, you know, becomes the the character that we're all familiar with. Mm. Yeah, it's it's not it's not an origin story in the sense that oh, this is the story of her and how she got her powers, but it is a it's a foundational moment for her. It's a character moment. Yeah. Yeah. It's more about how it's the origin of how she became who she is in terms of her essence, the yeah. essence of her character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Yeah. So 
I think those are just about all the evergreen Wonder Woman stories we've got. Mm. It's, it's like a really good amount of stories that all came in the past like 15, 20 years. Yeah. Other than Kingdom Come and uh, Legend of Wonder Woman. Yeah. But so many of these are, are more recent works. It, it feels like we're in a kind of the, the golden age of Wonder Woman. Yeah. I um, So there are things that some people would consider evergreen, but you want to talk about that for a little bit? Just Yeah, man. Yeah. Just at least acknowledge, Let's acknowledge them. Acknowledge yeah. them, right? Like cuz cuz I think the I think the story or the run that most people would consider to be the I don't know, evergreen or definitive Wonder Woman is the George Perez run. Yeah, that's something that I never actually read it when I was a kid, but I remember seeing it everywhere mm-hmm. you know like yeah it was it was the thing that people pointed to but yeah go ahead you you uh i'll i'll wait to, <laughs> to, to <laughs> for you to set the groundwork before i say anything um well i acknowledge that the george perez the george perez run was very influential uh, earlier, we mentioned a little bit about the Crisis on Infinite Earths back in the mid-late 80s. I think that was, what, 86 or 87? Um, so, like, out of... when After that occurred, DC reset their continuity, and we got stories like John Burns, the Man of Steel, to establish Superman in this new uh, official continuity and what he was like, his origin, and his power set. Uh, we, I, I mean, I guess we could kind of count Batman Year One in there too. It, that told Batman's retold Batman's origin, mm. and George Perez did the same thing for Wonder Woman. He did a, an extended run on Wonder Woman. He, the, at least for the first part of it, he he wrote and drew it. I don't know if he drew the whole thing. Um, mm. I actually uh, stopped reading his run after <laughs> the first couple of trades because I just wasn't feeling it, to be honest. Yeah. Like I, I think, uh, well, I know how you feel about George Perez's art. I know you don't <laughs> like it. <laughs> Me personally, I, I don't mind it. I, don't, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm a fan of it or anything. I don't seek out his work, but I can tell that his work is hyper-detailed. I don't necessarily... Yeah care for it but i don't feel strongly about uh i don't recoil from it either yeah it's... but uh you yeah yeah tell us tell us how you feel about his artwork <laughs> <laughs> like it's it's this funny thing where it's like i look at it and i recognize that he probably spent a lot of time on it and you mentioned that it's very detailed so i'll give it that but mm-hmm. it's just something that feels very like it feels like it's trapped in a time bubble <laughs> and it just it just never just the way that he designs people it never outgrew a certain style you know yeah and yeah. it's just not something that I was ever into and I I would even go as far as to say that there are times where looking at it it just seems busy you know and not in a good way <laughs> yeah um, and in terms of his writing, like, I, I can't, I, I can't say that I've actually read any of 
his his comics, but I feel like I feel like I read something of his and it left me with enough of an impression to know that I didn't want to read anything by him again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, not not to be like harsh about it, but that's just the reality of it. I I suppose that someday just just to be fair, I will I will put in the effort to read his run just to say that I uh gave him a fair shot. Yeah. But it's uh, yeah, I, I I can't say that the art or him being the writer are immediate draws for me. They're in fact they're quite the opposite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I I did read uh not his whole run but I felt like I gave it a fair chance. I You read enough of it. <laughs> yeah, I actually had the first two or three trades, so I think I read maybe like 14 or 14 issues give or take a few, something like that. That's a lot, um, man. That's more than a fair more yeah. than a fair um shot. Yeah. He did he did things that I guess they they lasted in terms of like her design and also uh the way that he involved the pantheon of Greek gods in the story and yeah. in her origin uh yeah but just in her story in general as well. So I, I think he he did leave an impact but as far as me personally enjoying his stories. I, I can't say that I enjoyed his stories either. I think his his writing style is. Uh, I mean, it's it's to me, it's very eighties. You know, meaning that it's it's wordy. Uh, he tries to use flowery language, but he's not Alan Moore. Um, and like you said, his art is trapped in a in a certain look, you know, and one, one thing that always stands out with his art is the way he draws people's hair. Like everybody Super looks like they're curly. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's so detailed that he, he draws too much stuff on, on their heads. Yeah. So yeah, that yeah. The way that they look, it just looks like everybody just got a perm straight out of the seventies. Yeah. I always think about the way that he drew his Avengers run when, uh, Busiek was writing it and, the thing that always jumps out at me was how he draws a uh, Scarlet Witch, and it's just, yeah, yeah, it's just not a look that I like. This was like 1999, and she yeah. looked like she stepped out of a 1960s or 1970s she, hair salon. She looked like she, yeah, she looked like she could have been in a workout video from the 70s. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. Cor- uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but we're two things. One was. Was the George per- George Perez run the one where Brian Boland was doing covers? Um, I don't think so. It might have been after. Okay, okay. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing was, I'm pretty sure he was the artist on this, but I don't know if he wrote it. But did he write that um, War of the Gods? I think so. I think that yeah. was George Perez. That, I think that might have been my earliest exposure to that one woman. And even as a kid, I remember thinking, that doesn't sound very interesting. 
Yeah, that was a, a DC event comic. Yeah, I yeah. just checked actually. That was written and drawn by George Perez. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like, I guess it's kind of messed up to say that if his art and writing left that kind of an impact on me as a kid, that I guess that sort of says something, but... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, un- it's unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah, no, no disrespect intended whatsoever. <laughs> but... We're just not fans. Yeah, yeah. I, I'll acknowledge that he did a lot of work, and he made a lot of contributions. There we go. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, another run that uh, some people might consider evergreen, uh, but not us, uh, but we still feel, you know, like we should mention it would be uh, Phil Jimenez's run on it. Yeah, he had a long run in the nineties. Yeah, he's. Think I'm about it 90s. this way. I think it was the, the early two thousands, actually, like right before Greg Rucka. I think like you're right early... too. Huh? I think you're right too. Yeah, yeah, it was before Rucka. What I was gonna say was, he's someone who feels like he came from the George Perez school of art and you know <laughs> yeah you know like if, if if I didn't like the original guy why would I be into one of his uh his spiritual successors yeah exactly exactly right yeah he definitely his style is definitely reminiscent his his art style is definitely reminiscent of George Perez the people's hair doesn't look as bad, but you can tell the way that he, uh, the way the way he, draws he, faces. he likes to draw a lot of details and face, the way he draws and structures his people's faces. Yeah, it's similar. I do think he's a better artist than George Perez, though. I'd rather I'd rather read a Phil Jimenez comic than a George Perez comic. That's true. He has his moments. Yeah, like he did some stuff uh, on New X-Men with Grant Morrison that I thought was pretty solid. I mean, it helped that the writing was really good. But I I didn't mind the art at all. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Anyway, he he had a long run on Wonder Woman. Uh, he, he wrote it too. Yeah, he wrote and drew it. Now he's a guy where I can say I'm like it's been a while since I've read something by him, but from what I remember, remember the stuff that I did read for him never jumped out at me at all. Yeah. Yeah. I read his uh. I don't. I didn't read the whole his whole run on Wonder Woman, but I remember he had a story arc with uh, Batman's Rogues Gallery getting taken over by uh, Greek. I guess the spirits of some Greek gods or something. Oh, I remember I, that. Yeah, I can't remember which which god uh, possessed I which villain. Poison Ivy, Joker, and Scarecrow. Yeah. Yeah, I don't remember which Greek gods possessed which character, but that was a story I read. And I, I just remember, I thought it would be cool because I was like, oh, sweet, Batman's on the cover. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, I remember thinking the same thing. And to be honest, it was just kind of boring. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was It was pretty boring. Yeah. I, I can't really think of a more descriptive way to say it than that. 
Yeah. I feel like this is a case where it might be evergreen to someone just because it was a long run. Was it a long run? I think it was at least like a couple years. Yeah. So. Yeah, I just checked uh, Wikipedia. looks like it it was about a two-year run. Yeah. I mean, he's an arrow for somebody. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Totally. There was another high-profile run back in the mid-2000s. This was, I think this was right after the series 52. Mm-hmm. Or it was it was either after fifty two or it was it was uh, after Infinite Crisis, but the famous uh, New York Times bestselling author Jody Pickolt had a short story or short run on Wonder Woman. I think she wrote five or six issues. And I had never read any of Jody Pickolt's novels. I just knew who she was because you know she's a famous novelist. But I saw that she was writing Wonder Woman. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll check that out because. She's this novelist that everybody seems to to like. Regard, uh, I, yeah. Yeah, and I read her Wonder Woman, and it was just awful. Yeah. I, I, feel I, don't, like... I don't know if it was all her fault or if it was just because of the editorial situation she was thrust in, but it was so bad, I, I told myself I would never bother trying <laughs> to read any of her novels. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'm not going to read her work just because it, that Wonder Woman story was that bad. Mm. From what I remember, like, in terms of the press at the time, like, it was pretty universally panned. Like, a lot of people had a lot of bad things to say about it. Yeah, weird thing is, is that if you go on Amazon today, and you look at the user ratings for her story, it's actually got pretty positive reviews, um, which surprised me. Huh. And I do remember at the time, uh, I don't remember the reviews at the time, but... I do remember DC really pumping her up because they were talking about how this is the first time a woman is going to be the regular writer on Wonder Woman. So, you know, you got to check out this run and it ended up only being like five or six issues, man. Yeah. <laughs> what the heck? And it, from what I remember, it ended on a cliffhanger. <laughs> yeah. It was see, a... I mean, something, I feel like there was some sort of drama that was happening behind the scenes and clearly that ended up you know, killing yeah. it on some it, level. Maybe if 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 she came out and, and told everybody that she walked away because DC's editorial was crippling her, okay, may, maybe I'll uh, recant my oath to never read one of her novels. But <laughs> <laughs> but as far as I know, I mean, you know, I just all I can do is just take that as her work. You know, like she yeah. she wrote that story; it has her name on it. It was enough of a sampling for you to know that you needed to steer clear. Yeah. She did a story where Wonder Woman uh, went back to becoming a secret agent. Kind of like yeah. what you were talking about earlier when she was in the when Wonder Woman was uh, in the she, 70s. Yeah, she, she even her, had Wonder Woman in the white jumpsuit again. Yeah, she, she was wearing the white jumpsuit. She was... Uh, I don't even know if she had her powers at the time. I think Jody Pickle might have removed her powers... And she became a secret agent. She was a, a secret agent who was teamed up with, I think it was Nemesis, another DC character. And they had this kind of teenage romance going on. I don't know if that was just how Jody Pickle writes her romances, but it just came off really 
corny, I guess. Mm. And it, it didn't really, it wasn't, number one, it was kind of silly. The plot, that aspect of the plot was silly, the way that she wrote their romance. Secondly, the, the overall plot was, again, I'm not very creative here, but I'm, I can only describe it as really boring. And then from what I remember, the ending was basically a lead up or tie in to Amazon's Attack, which was another horrible miniseries written by yeah. somebody else. Yeah. So basically, it's something you read and you're like, what was the point of that? Why did I, why did I waste <laughs> my time on that? Well, yeah. I mean, I want to... Okay, so I'm going to jump from that run to the next run on, yeah, yeah. on our list here, which was J. Michael Straczynski's Wonder Woman. And uh, this was uh, uh, something that came out in... Was this in the New 52? Was this like... I know this was before Brian Azzarello and Cliff Chang's Wonder Woman. Yeah, but, it was before the New 52. But was this intended to be the... Yeah, so I like uh, that entire era was just muddled and messy. But it I, was a bad time for J. Michael Straczynski's comics because I think that was the same era where he wrote Superman. Yeah, uh, Year One. Wait, no, was that or is that no, Jeff no? Gunn? It was called uh, Earth One. He did an Earth One Superman that was horrible. Yeah, and he also did a Superman uh, monthly story. A story in the monthly Superman series called Which was Grounded. Bad. Yeah, that was pretty bad too. It was a, yeah. the whole concept of Grounded was Superman trying to find himself by literally walking across America. <laughs> <laughs> so dumb. Um, yeah, but this was. Uh, I remember this was a a big deal because one, J. Michael Straczynski was someone they had plucked from Marvel and. Uh, I guess he made a lot of sales on Spider-Man at Marvel. So for them, yeah. this was like a big steal. And he's known for his work on Babylon 5 and uh, other TV shows. Um, so DC, you know, picked him up and they put him on Wonder Woman. And the the one thing that I remember at the time was this Wonder Woman was a big deal because he he his Wonder Woman would have a redesign of her classic look, and that was the first time that we had. That would be kind of a portent of things to come for the rest of the DC universe because feel <sighs> she was the first one to have her costume changed, and you know it took out all the gold accent, put in silver, and she had like tights on like leather pants. pants or something right yeah and a jacket like oh it, yeah it was but i don't i never actually read this comic but from what i do remember there was a lot of press around just things going wrong with its uh coming out mm -hmm. that that's the thing that left me with the biggest impression was just the drama surrounding its release more than the actual story itself. Yeah. And also, like a lot of other JMS works, he never finished it. Yeah. He he left midway through his story, so if anybody did like it and they were reading it, they didn't get any closure. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. think that's funny, Albert? Yeah, I revel in that. <laughs> 
I take joy in that. <laughs> I'm that petty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was not a good run of Wonder Woman. Yeah. So there you have it. That's our list of Wonder Woman stories you should read and Wonder Woman stories you shan't read. You shan't. <laughs> <laughs> What languages you speaking, man? What I don't languages you speaking. I don't know what. <laughs> I shan't or I shantn't. <laughs> oh boy. Well, oh we're boy. coming up on uh, the three hour mark, so I think it's a good time to to call it, man. Yeah. Any uh, final thoughts? Uh. I think the thing that just stands out is that, number one, it's a shame that with Suicide Squad, it, it, we haven't had any great runs since that John Ostrander run. Yeah. So it's, it's been like a solid almost 30 years since yeah. we've had a good Suicide Squad. And the funny thing is the opposite with, the, with Wonder Woman, where we've, had, we've just had such a bountiful haul of great evergreen wonder woman stories in the past couple decades yeah you can throw a rock and hit a good wonder woman story yeah yeah but because they're part of the dc movie verse and people are making video games and stuff they're just really popular uh, characters properties uh, that we'll see exploited in different mediums besides comics it's just Mm. i just wish that the comics um, I just wish we had more Suicide comic, Suicide Squad comics that were better. Yeah. Like, I, I don't really care too much for the movies or the video games. Like, if they were good, that'd be different. But, yeah, you know, uh, even if they were bad, as long as I have good comics or the good version of them in comics, then I, I, I don't really care about them quite as much. But... You know, we live in the absolute worst version of that multiverse where <laughs> I I neither have a good movie or video game or a good comic, so... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. At least give us one or the other. Yeah. Curse you, multiverses! <laughs> <laughs> but at least we got plenty of good Wonder Woman stuff. Yeah. Yeah, man. Uh, yeah, and I, you know, I'm I'm glad to be able to just pick up any one of those. I'm glad that I can, you know, introduce people to to those Wonder Woman stories. You know, with the movies coming out, if you want to know more about Wonder Woman, like, you know, we'll we'll post it up on our Instagram. But read any of those Wonder Woman stories, and you, I, you shan't be disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, all those comics that we talked about, I'm sure sure you can find them on Comixology if you want the digital version, or just go to your local comic book store and look them up in the trade paperback collections or back issue bins. There we go. Yep. All right, everybody. This is Between the Gutters signing out. Uh, Thanks for listening, and we will catch you next time. Bye, guys. Peace out. Peace out.